Kucherov couldn't hold the puck in. Here's a race for the puck. Edmund's got to get moving to get back before Yanmark, and he does. And Yanmark tripped and fell, so there's only three Dallas Stars back as Kucherov moves in. Spins and deals. Braden Point moves in and shoots it over. The rebound score! Braden Point opens the scoring on the power play, and Tampa Bay has a one to nothing lead. And this is where they can be dangerous. Hey now. Hey now. All right, it is Monday night going into Tuesday. The Tampa Bay Lightning just won the Stanley Cup. Uh, some thoughts on that in a second. Congratulations to them, I guess. It is season number 10, episode number 19. My name is Steve Bennett. This is the Sportscasters. I was thinking a little bit about Hey Now. And some of the other things I'll occasionally say, let me get you out of here on this. That's a tip of the cap to Tony Kornheiser. You know, I've said, do you have any questions for me? That's a tip of the hat to Mike Shope. Hey Now is obviously a tip of the hat to the Howard Stern Show. Uh, there's a few others that I do occasionally mix in. And sometimes I've wondered, you know, is that too much gimmick infringement? Is that the wrong thing to do? And I've been watch or listening to a podcast called Talking Sopranos. And it's with uh, Michael Imperioli and Steve Sharippa, who were Christopher and Bacala on the show. And I was listening to them. Well, they're up to season three. So I've listened to them talk about, you know, 20 episodes, 20 plus episodes now. And they're always talking about things within the show that are a nod or a tribute to this or that. Tons of Godfather references. Uh, music references. They were talking about the season three premiere today, which was when the FBI puts the bug in the basement. And they mentioned that uh, the name, the code name for one of the Sopranos family members was a tip of the cap to Bing Crosby. So it made me feel good today listening to that. And and kind of gave me a little bit more confidence about doing Hey Now and uh, Good Job by You and... Do you have any questions for me? And those kinds of things. They're just kind of tributes to people that I look up to or admire, uh, and I have fun doing that. Today on the show, we have a good one. First off, right away, we're going to interview Jeff Perlman. Uh, Jeff has a new book out called Three Ring Circus. It's been part of the book club for a while now. Uh, Jeff and I do about an hour like we usually do. He's one of the most beloved guests on here. Uh, often we do interviews that are hangs. We just kind of talk. People love those. Of course, this time and a few other times, it's more a focus on his book. Uh, we have promoted Sweetness, Gunslinger, Showtime, Three Ring Circus, and Football for a Buck. So five of his nine books. He's going to be on the show. Also, Ryan Aber is going to be on the show. He covers the Oklahoma Sooners for the Oklahoman. Of course, they lost this week. This interview was recorded before they lost. So in between the two games, the first game they won and the second game they lost, we recorded that. We'll do that after the book club. Of course, we have the book club. And then one last thing will be about my grandmother, uh, who on September 23rd, it was the 25th year anniversary of her death. And I'm going to talk about her. 
Uh, quickly, I wanted to talk about the Stanley Cup playoffs that just ended. Like I said, the Tampa Bay Lightning won the Stanley Cup four games to two over Dallas. Uh, Zach Bogosian and Alex Kalorn become my most hated players to win the Cup since Ryan O'Reilly won it last year. Uh, and look, it, it you got to give a tip of the hat to the NHL, I guess, for pulling this off. They're the first sports league. Uh, to reach the COVID finish line. And they did it with zero tests positive the whole time in the bubble. They paid a lot of money to do it. I think it's I heard it cost a million dollars a day to run that thing. And they were there for over 60 days. And most of the days, there was two sites. So a million dollars a day per site. So $2 million a day for a long time. I do have some criticisms, though. First of all, it's ridiculous that they didn't let these people have family in the building, especially for the Stanley Cup final. Uh, I don't think there's any reason why they couldn't have safely uh, done this with a couple hundred people in the stands. It's an insult to the players who work so hard uh, to get this done. I didn't watch a lot of it, and that's been honest. I checked in every day on games, on the app, on my phone. I watched overtimes uh, on my phone. I put it on the second TV occasionally. I was hurt by the fact that I didn't have a team to root for. I was hurt by the fact that I just wasn't into sports that much at the moment. And I was uh, hurt by sort of the politics that somehow got into hockey. I'm not sure why that happened. I wish it didn't. Uh, but I didn't watch a lot. I am glad that it's over because I'm ready for the next season to start, right? Like I want, I do love the Sabres. They're probably my number two team. And I think they definitely are my number two team. And I, I'm looking forward to watching them again, I think. You know, there was a ridiculous Jack Eichel trade rumor thread started by Bob McKenzie, who I thought is better than that clickbait bullshit today on Twitter. Uh, but it got my juices flowing a little bit for Sabres. Uh, I had mentioned that I was in this sports haze of indifference for a long time, and I was hoping that the Saints would pop me out of it. And I mentioned how after the first week they did. Uh, well, now after two losses and they're lost and they look ridiculous, they don't look nearly as good as I thought. I'm sort of wishing that they uh, would go away again. Uh, Jason Whitlock who I know is polarizing, OutKick I know is polarizing. Uh, you know, I've done this podcast for nine years, and only one time did I get an email from someone else questioning a guest I had, and that was Bobby Burak, probably the least controversial uh, part of OutKick. I got two emails, which was insane to me. People questioning having him on the show, it's ridiculous. But uh, Jason Whitlock tweeted today that he thinks and wrote about it in his column uh, that Mike Thomas and Malcolm Jenkins ruined Drew Brees' mojo and split the locker room and it's no longer Drew Brees' team. He's just a guy on the team. And I think he might be right. Uh, something just doesn't seem right about Drew Brees and it's not his arm strength. You know, there's been this narrative going around that he doesn't throw the ball further far enough down the field, look at it. For years now, three, four years, his arm has not been as strong as it was when he entered the league, which, by the way, was not 
the strongest arm in the league from day one. So I'm not worried about that. He's a brilliant player. And if the best way to get the team down the field is to throw short passes, he does that. And by the way, despite the fact that he feels off to me and it doesn't look right to me, the offense has scored, you know, 30 or more two of the three games. So personally, as a Saints fan, I'm much more concerned with the way the defense is playing, which is embarrassing. The Packers game the other night, the Packers scored on seven of nine drives. Okay, you can't win like that. You know, you forced one punt and one stop on a fourth and one. And then seven scoring drives. And Peyton has also been off. He didn't call a great game week one. He actually described it himself as awful. Uh, the Raiders game was awful. And then the decision to, after four straight scoring drives, and the offense finally seeming to be in a rhythm and moving a little bit, and he's taking Drew Brees off the field for a Taysom Hill play that results in a fumble and sort of ended the game at that point. So Peyton is off, the defense is off, and Brees is off, and I'm worried about the team's mojo in general. Like, why? Because it's not talent, right? It's not that. But they don't look good, uh, and I'm not optimistic. And I am worried that uh, Drew Brees' soul is just crushed. I know that when everything happened that happened, he was devastated that people didn't think he was an ally. And I have been very vocal about my opinion that he was treated unfairly. And I do understand that I am one of the biggest Drew Brees fans on the planet. So maybe you take my opinion with a grain of salt about that. But it seems harmful for a football team, uh, for the players on the team to be just destroying their quarterback on Twitter. Malcolm Jenkins, who hadn't even been on the team for five minutes at that point, you know, put out a, a just scathing video dropping F-bombs about Brees. Emmanuel Sanders not on the team yet. Dropping hate to Breeze. Mike Thomas. You know, Breeze has made him a multi-million dollar player the last few years. Ripping Breeze. I've said it before. The only two people that I could tell that came out to support Breeze were Joe Horn, who hasn't been on the team since 2006, and Marcus Davenport, who hasn't played yet this year. And then I kind of thought that some people who didn't say anything were kind of in a way supporting him, you know, but didn't want to, didn't have the balls to put themselves out there. So I'm not optimistic about the Saints. I did a, oh, a couple other things. Thank you to everyone who reached out and said they enjoyed the Triumph, the Rick Emmett interview. Uh, that was really fun for me to do. And Rick was really good. I thought it turned out really good. I posted it on a Facebook group, a Triumph Facebook group, and some people in that thanked me for not asking him about a Triumph reunion. Uh, that was by design. He's been asked and answered that question a hundred times. There's no need to waste time on that. I know where he stands. I enjoyed talking to Rick, though. That was really fun. I did an interview today, which will be on the next podcast, that I really enjoyed. Uh, Blake J. Harris, who has been on this show before, he's the author of a book called Console Wars, a former book club book of the month, book of the year. 
Uh, Blake is the director of a new documentary called Console Wars based on the book. Uh, the executive producer, Seth Rogen, and his partner, Evan, whatever Evan's name is. And it's available now on CBS All Access Streaming. And I guess in January, it will go to a broader audience through all of the Viacom properties, including Paramount, I guess. I did an hour-long interview with him and his co-director and partner, a guy named Jonah. Uh, and that'll run next week. Uh, also, Dater is coming. Uh, Jason Cole, the Elway book, that's coming. Uh, a bunch of stuff. I talked to Joe Buck the other day. That's coming at some point. Joe will be on. I want to reach out to Kenny Albert uh, to get his thoughts on hockey, the bubble, uh, being out of it. He was held out of two football games for some kind of strange quarantine. That's another thing I want to mention about the hockey that drives me nuts in all sports. Is the fake social distancing and mask wearing that these people are doing on TV drives me nuts. It's so disingenuous. You know, like, does anyone believe that the football broadcasters who are in the same city together and eat lunch together and do meetings together are doing anything to delay the spread of COVID by sitting apart from each other with a piece of plexiglass in between them? It's so disingenuous. It's so reeks of political bullshit. It just makes me, again, it just drives me away from sports on TV. The people in the NHL bubble, in that building, many multiple negative tests, doing interviews with masks on, with six-foot-long microphone booms, People who are presenting the Stanley Cup doing it with masks. It just looks ridiculous. Uh, it is ridiculous. Drives me nuts. Drives me away. Uh, but this is what we got today. Jeff Perlman next. Book Club. Ryan Aber on the Sooners and college football in general. One last thing to close it out on my grandmother and 25 years since her death. Uh, thanks again to everyone who reached out about the Rick Emmett interview. Thanks again to Ian Ross, who has messaged me a couple times. I appreciate your support, Ian. Thanks to Fred Cass, one of the OG sportscasters, uh, fans, Fred, uh, Ford Kendrick. Uh, everyone who's listened, who's helping me through this and uh, still listening, I appreciate you. Uh, and I'm really having fun doing the podcast right now. Uh, so let's do it. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Jeff Perlman. Our first guest today is one of the Sportscasters originals. He's been on the show since 2011. We've promoted five of his books now. He's a Delaware graduate. A Mayo Pack native, a great father, a great husband, and a great person. And I'm sort of honored that he's sort of my friend. Uh, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Jeff Perlman. What's up, Jeff? How you doing, buddy? I'm very well. Thank you. Good to be back here for my 700th visit. I wonder, I was trying to think earlier, the first book was Sweetness. So how many books have you released and then promoted on here? Sweetness, Football for a Buck, Sweetness, Showtime. And- no, Sweetness, Showtime, Favre, 
USFL on this, so five. Okay, five. Wow. That is definitely a record. I don't think anyone else has promoted five books here. I know no one has, for sure. So. Um, yeah, it's funny. I don't know. Uh, you know, I never thought, I'm not I'm not saying this like braggy. I actually mean it. Like, I never, um, I never, I never saw my career going in a place where I had to pause for a minute to figure out the order of the books I wrote. Like, if you told me you're going to have a moment where you're not going to be able to remember the order of the books you wrote, I'd be like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, there's no way. Like, that's not where my career is going. That's a weird thing to actually be like, wait, which book did I write at that time? Like, it's funny. I, just, I didn't see that happening. I didn't see myself writing books. I don't know if you ever seen the uh, documentary, the Rush documentary. I believe it's called All the World's a Stage, maybe. Something like that. or uh-huh. Whatever. It doesn't matter. There's a Rush documentary. It's really good, actually. And Jack Black is in it. And he's really good in it. And one thing he says is that every band, they have a bottle of ketchup. I think he calls it rocket sauce, though, to be cool. And he's like, mm-hmm. when they write their first song, they tip over their bottle of ketchup. And each band has different amounts in there. You know, some bands only have enough ketchup for one good song, one good album. Yeah. You know, some have three, some have four. And his point was, you know, someone like Rush tipping it over for 40 years. What about you and your bottle of ketchup and your rocket sauce? How many books do you think are still left in there? Because you're pretty deep into it now. I mean, yeah. five on here, and there was at yeah. least four or five before that, right? I mean, there was uh, the Mets, this the Cowboys. Okay, so four before it, sure. How many more do you have in yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, think? so, I mean, I'm working on Bo Jackson, so hopefully all things goes well. That's 10. Another book, hold on, like, hold on. Another book yeah. not announced on this show, by the way. Because well, I don't <laughs> think of these. You know, wait, you know why that was announced, though? No, I right? didn't even know it was out until like 15 minutes ago. I saw some interviewer ask you about it, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was public. Yeah. You know why that was made public? The only reason it was made public is because I interviewed David Cohn, and who's a Yankee broadcaster. Oh, he said it on there? He goes, on the air, he's with Michael Kay, and he goes, actually, it was, it was a lovely compliment. He goes, the great writer, Jeff Perlman, working on a Bo Jackson book. And I was like, well, Ooh. that's out of the bag. Because all of a sudden, people <laughs> were tweeting at me. People were tweeting at me, holy cow, you're doing a Bo Jackson book. And I was like, I guess I am. So that was, uh, I was not really prepared to express it, but it's no big deal. Were so you that, sitting right there? Nice one. He meant, no, oh, okay. I, uh, I heard someone told me on Twitter. Someone, oh, okay. Actually, someone first texted me, and then I saw it. It was funny. It was funny. So Wow. But um, have you had Feinstein on here? You have, right? Yeah, yep. So he's probably written whatever, 25, 26, 30, 40, I don't know, books. Like, there's no way that's me. Like, there, there's no way that's me. Um, I don't know, though. Maybe a couple more. I don't want to spend, I don't think I want to spend the rest of my life writing books. But I don't know. What else? Know. What else do you think you want to do? Have you ever thought about it? What I'm going to do next? You know, I think um, I was talking to my wife about this the other day. My wife is a social worker, as you know, and mm-hmm. um, like we spent we spent one summer. She was the director of a camp for disadvantaged kids, a summer camp. We spent the summer living at this camp, and uh, it was pretty amazing. And I just think I would love to do something that feels a little more. Uh, meaningful besides just giving people entertainment and documenting history. And I don't know what that might be. Maybe, I mean, maybe I get more involved in politics. Maybe I work as in press on someone's campaign who I really believe in, or maybe I take an issue or I don't know, or maybe I'm here 10 years ago talking about my 17th book. I don't, I I just don't know, but the books beat you up. You know, they really beat you up. Um, 
that sounds whiny, but they do take a lot out of you. Well, I always know when I text you about something pretty benign and I get this bark back. I'm like, oh man, he's in book hell right now. I'm just going to let it go. And sometimes you'll even, ad- sometimes you'll even uh, admit it. You know, you'll be like, yeah, sorry. It's just a bad time. Um, but yeah, I can tell, you know, from our, just our personal interactions, which, you know, mm-hmm. are more than most people I talk to on here, but not, you know, not it, it, incredibly frequent, but frequent enough that I can I can tell the differences in your in your attitude sometimes, and uh, it's clear that this can be difficult. And we've talked about it before, anyway. You it's ta- just hard. Yeah, you've talked about before. No, how... it's hard. Yeah, I believe you. I believe it's hard. Yeah. I was I was gonna say we talked about yeah. before how you spend all this time alone, kind of trying to create this, and how you do you have embraced the promoting it because it's a chance to get out from being alone and 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 show it to everyone and get talked to by all these different people and promote it. So, I, I mean, as much as you joke around that you're a book whore and all that, I think you do enjoy it, right? This part of it anyway. I do. Um, it's funny. I was talking to Jonathan Ike, who's a, a really good writer and a really good friend of mine. And um, a couple of days ago, and I was talking about promoting a book during COVID and how, you know, there, I, I'm, there are 8 million people who have it worse than me, probably a hundred million people have it worse than me sure. right now in the world. But, but, um, you know, like those three weeks of promoting your book after being in a cave for two and a half years, they're pretty special. And really, it's, it's like having a bar mitzvah every couple of years where you you come out and you do your little dance, you go to this TV studio and they send a car for you. I said to me, he's like, it's like you're a celebrity for three weeks. And that's what it's like a little bit. And everyone has an ego and you work your ass off. So um, not being able to go places is a little bit of a buzzkill. You know, I'm trying my best to still make it feel great. And I'm really working hard. on promoting this thing, as you can see, but you know, like just an example, I'm doing a Colin Coward show in a couple of days and I freaking love going to that set and sitting down there and the lights are on you. And there's this buzz of electricity that really is, there's just a buzz about it all or going on to Rome or going, I've been on morning Joe before I've been on, I was on Hannity before, you know, like there's like, there's a spark about going because you don't do it that often. So there's a spark when it happens and um, to do it via zoom or Skype or FaceTime, it's, it's still cool, but it just doesn't feel the same. Right. I had re- I had messaged you and asked you what, what you were doing this time. You didn't really get into it, but are you mentioned coward. Are there some other really cool ones that you're doing this time around? Like, we got you got to um, get you got to find a way to get on. Pardon the take or whatever it's called because that's the show. I think is it? Yeah, I think uh, it is. Like my brothers, I hate those shows so much. My brothers, like the younger people, they will do anything said on that show. Yeah, actually, you know, I wasn't so. I got to email that guy again, um, Big Cat. He's actually a really nice guy. Yeah. Um, and you know what's funny? I'll tell you what's funny about Barstool is I've done myself a favor. And this is unlike me, and you'll actually be surprised. I've pretty much ignored the controversies about Barstool. Like, I haven't really paid attention. So I know they've done stuff that's kind of gross. I don't really know the specifics. And I think I've, this is one area. Like, I feel like everyone's allowed to ignore a few things in life. Sure. You know, like, there are a lot of things that outrage me. And every now and then, I, I do take moments, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to stay back off that one. And this is one, Barstool. If they call me to appear... You know, I'll do it. Oh, I don't you know enough about that. Do it. 
you should absolutely do it. I did it before. Yeah. And it was one of the best interviews I did. In fact, I'm going to text that guy uh, as soon as we're done. I really am. So. Yeah, I think know. that's a big one. And I think a lot of their controversies have been, you know, 21st century type of cancel culture stuff. You know, I think that there's maybe, I'm sure there's one or two that if we looked into it and we really broke it down, we'd be like, all right, we got to call them on that one. But I think some of them are, yeah. you know. Just in general, I think some of these things, it's almost exhausting to keep up, you know, with who's in trouble, who's not in trouble. I am I am often caught naive to it. You know, I'll tweet someone or talk to someone about someone and I'm like, oh, man, that guy did this. I'm like, what? You know, I missed it. I missed I, what? What happened? You know, so I think you're right. I think. But I don't think there's I mean, a lot of people go on that show, so I don't think that that. That's at that point. I think people more you know, have a problem with I'll Portnoy you, than those guys, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I don't even know that much about him, but I saw, I think, 60 Minutes did a segment on him. HBO, HBO um, Sports did. Real Sports, I know, did. Oh, uh, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Real Sports. Yeah. Um, I, feel like, I feel like one thing I learned, one thing I've done, like, we live, all right, so, you know, as you know, I'm very liberal. My yes. family's very liberal. We, yes. need, we live near Chick-fil-A, right? We live near Chick-fil-A. Okay. And Chick-fil-A is very conservative, and they definitely did some things about, you know, sort of donating to, you know, um, outlets that are, were very kind of anti-gay rights, right? And it led to a really interesting discussion in my household where I think it was my sister-in-law was like, how can you ever eat a Chick-fil-A and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, my first four books were written for HarperCollins. HarperCollins is owned by Rupert Murdoch, right? Like, yeah, I know Chick-fil-A and I know, but I always say like, do you know who McDonald's is giving money to? Do you know who the guy who owns a pizza place down the street is giving money to like, it's exhausting to keep track of every single person and who they, what they believe in and who they give money to. And sometimes you just fucking want a piece of chicken. <laughs> you yeah. know, like sometimes you just want to get a piece of chicken. And I do think, and I know this sounds a little unlike me. I do think it is okay to write a book for HarperCollins if you're liberal. And I think it's okay to go on morning Joe, if you're conservative. And I think it's okay to, go to Chick-fil-A and have a chicken and be as pro gay rights as you are. Like not everyone is going to agree with you and some things are ugly in this world. And every now and then you are just allowed to overlook it because if you don't, your head is going to explode. You know, I'm all in on that. And I, I long for a day where I didn't know, you know, the politics of Lego or, you know, Tonka trucks or whoever, you know, this year, especially it seems like people, the companies, they, 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 Corporations so much just don't want to be bothered. They just want to sell whatever they're selling, right? And they'll do anything yeah. to avoid any controversy at all. And I think it creates this situation where we just know too much about these companies. You know, like when I go to Chick Fil A or someone like it, I just want to know if the chicken's good. You know, when I, I go want chicken. when I go buy a pair of sneakers, I just want to know if it's a comfortable shoe. You know, I don't need to know yep. every aspect of the company's politics or who makes the sneaker or where they make the sneaker or how they do it. You know, that's just, I don't know. You got to pick your shots. I think you got to pick your shots. And sometimes it's just, sometimes you're just allowed to freaking like, do I have to, before I go to Denny's, do I have to look up and see who Denny's corporate or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure like we could both scan the investors in Denny's and you'll find people who object to you and I'll find people who object to me. But at the end of the day, sometimes you just want a freaking hamburger. 
Yeah. Maybe not a Denny's though, because Denny's is kind of gross. Maybe not the best hamburger there. Maybe a Grand Slam breakfast yeah, at Denny's. Uh, um, yeah, that might be better. That right. I think also, you know, okay, Chick Fil A. Maybe they made a bad donation on the at the highest level of their corporation, but they also aren't, you know, interviewing when they interview their however many employees. And from what I know, they actually play pay pretty well too for fast food. Mm-hmm. Um, they will hire anyone who, I mean, I've been to Chick-fil-A. It seems like a very diverse staff. Uh, my feeling is they have many people gay and lesbian employed there. Um, I hope that was super clean. That place is the cleanest, friendliest fast food restaurant on the planet. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess my point is, is when you get below that top level of the corporation, you know, I think in the end you're dealing with your neighbors again, right? Like the people who work at the Chick-fil-A by me. For the most part, are people who live by me, like they're just my neighbors, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm with you. You doing Rome this time around? I know you like Rome. Getting out, uh, I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing Rome. I love Rome. Yeah. Are you surprised yeah. at how rest- like okay? You said you can't go on the set of Cowher. Are you doing any traveling? Are you doing anything in person? I mean, I watch TV. There's it seems like there's interviews and stuff going on some places. I don't know. I don't know. Like how restricted is it? I don't have any books so far. No? Nothing? It seems pretty restricted. I have, um, right now I have about 60 things booked and none of them are live. Interesting. So, I don't know. I'm a little surprised yeah. by that. Maybe I should. Maybe they just don't like me. Maybe I shouldn't be, but maybe I'm a little surprised by that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I know I have been wondering, like, what are we what are we doing? I try to look at coronavirus in the least political ways possible, you know, which has become very mm-hmm. difficult. But I just want to yeah. know, like where I live, we have less than 100 cases for almost a million people. And mm-hmm. the Clyde... Wait, Hall- less than 100 cases? Cases. Total? Yes. Yeah, that's good. That's for Erie and Niagara County, which is almost yeah, a million people. And we have 10 people... And the, the Clyde Health System is like probably 85% of our hospital beds. There's also the Catholic Health System, which is much smaller. But most of the hospitals here are Clyde mm-hmm. Health. They have 10, 10 active yep. corona patients right now. So I'm just, I'm kind of wondering, like, what are we doing? Like, so we are, are we essentially saying zero or nothing? Is that what we've decided? I don't think so. So no, like, what, what are we waiting? Yet. What are we waiting for here? Like, I just want to know. Well, I think I don't, you got to talk to your local government. I have no idea. I mean, where we are in California, they have different thresholds. And um, like Orange County, where I live, the case has been going down. And supposedly they're going to be opening schools gingerly in mid-October. And hopefully if everything goes well, we can do more. I mean, the, the, I guess the worry to a certain degree, especially in cold cities, is what's going to happen when tons of people are inside and you don't want it to sprout up and resurge again. But I don't. I don't know, man. You're asking the wrong guy. It's not my. Uh, it's above my pay grade. Mine too. Mine too. I'm disappointed for you though that you can't do more with this book because I know you worked really hard on it, and I know you told me in confidence, and I hope I'm not breaching it, but I know you told me that this was a difficult one, right? That you didn't enjoy it maybe as much as some of the others. Is that true? Or do you want I mean, to deny hard. that? I Did would... I say that in, in confidence? When no, I no, 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 okay. no, no, no. All right. No, I I would say that's true. I mean. You have to keep in mind also, I'm coming off the most fun book I've written, which is the USFL book. Your dream. So, that was your dream in a way. And, 
it was my dream sports book. Yeah, yeah. And it was something I thought about doing for a long time, and it, it lived up to the hype, just the joy of it all. So, um, you know, this book was just, it was hard. It wasn't like USFL, everybody wanted to talk. You know, 99 out of 100 people were thrilled that I was calling them. And this book was, it was just harder. It's modern athletes or pretty close to modern athletes. And they're just a little more difficult, you know? I think specifically comparing it to Showtime, I know I have I enjoyed this one a little bit more than Showtime. I know as a writer, you've said that this was much more difficult to do and much less, much less enjoyable, maybe if that's the right word, than Showtime was. You know, it's kind of funny. It's like... um it's like when you go on a vacation, all right, like years ago, we did a house swap and we went to Barcelona, right? Family in Barcelona stayed in our house in New York. We stayed in their house in Barcelona. Maybe a vacation really affordable. Mm. And I look back now at that vacation. Yeah, it's a good idea, by the way. And I, uh, I look back now at that vacation and I'm always like, man, Barcelona, that was the best time, blah, blah, blah. It was awesome, blah, blah. And when I really think about it, I had like a major health anxiety freak out in Barcelona where I was basically inconsolable for four days where I was like, I know I have something and blah, 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 blah. Like, but over time you tend to forget how hard things are and you just kind of try to remember the good things. And, um, like Showtime is a hard, those books are hard. Team books are so much harder mentally than biographies of individuals, like a million times harder. They just are that you, you have to fight, to not make them repetitious because the seasons are going to be repetitious. And even though at the time it might seem amazing that Sacramento and it's a Lakers and it's Mike Bibby and Doug, like then you're looking back and the games do repeat themselves and it's really, really hard. Um, and I think I figured out how to do it sort of okay, but it's hard to not become a repetitious writer where, and then against Sacramento and then against Portland and then, and those really, they beat me up. Like right. writing those seasons, they beat me up because they, they're just mentally taxing, you know? Well, here's what so, I noticed. I don't know. Maybe Showtime was just as hard. Showtime might have been just as hard. And I'm just forgetting how hard it was. That's possible. Sure. Here's what I noticed about this book. And maybe I'm wrong. You can pour water on this if you think so. When I, when I read your books, usually, I'm often reading about, let's just use the maths. So I'm reading the maths and I think, I'm going to read all these stories about Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. And sure, there's stories about those guys. But there's also these stories about, like, the third catcher, you know, or the backup outfielder or, you know, um, some, yeah. somebody's sister. This one, I feel like, is about Shaq and Kobe. You know, <laughs> that it's just, it's about those two guys. That maybe you didn't want it to be about those two guys, but in the end, it's the Shaq and Kobe book. So funny. Um, it was, uh, I, I can't disagree with that completely. Um, I've said this a few times, so I hate, I hate repeating myself in different interviews, especially when right. I, like this one, you always have me on. I hate being the guy who like, you listen to my interviews and you're like, oh wait. Um, but I've never, um, I always go into the books super excited to tell the story of like Rick Fox and Mark Madsen and Tyron Lou and training camp invitees. Like, I love that stuff. Right. And I do it in this book. I think I do. It. I try to do it in this book, but I've never worked on a book where everything brings you back to like this weird gravitational pull of Shaq and Kobe, where 
you're trying to swim away from it and you just can't get very far because everyone you interview comes right back to that subject. And it's that subject, that subject, that subject. And you can be talking, I'm sitting with Rick Fox in, in LA or I'm sitting with Jelani McCoy in San Diego, or I'm on the phone with Mike Penberthy. And one minute you find yourself talking about college or Phil Jackson or whatever. And somehow it always came back to Shaq and Kobe. They had that big of a, influence on everything that happened. And a lot of those guys were there because of Shaq and Kobe, either to kind of serve as babysitters, to serve as buffers, to play off of those guys. So it was never that case. It wasn't like Dwight Gooden and Darryl Strawberry always came up in Met interviews or Michael Irvin and Trey Aikman always came up in Cowboy interviews. With Shaq and Kobe, it was very hard to escape their power in, in reporting this. Yeah, and I, I, it just felt really noticeable in the book and it's not a negative at all. I don't mean it that way. I don't even know that it's mm-hmm. a positive. It just is this book. I'll always think of it as, you know, uh, the Shaq and Kobe book. Let's go through some of the people. Uh, I want to say this, first of all, anyone who's listening to this now and didn't hear the last time Jeff was on, you should definitely listen to that. And when I send out the link to this, I'll send out the link to that as well. Because, Jeff, if you remember, we already did the what happened to this book after Kobe died talk so i don't i don't think we need to do all that again um so i'm not going to uh we already did it and i'll link to it and people can hear it um so i'm gonna skip that but i i wanted to at least mention that's why i'm skipping it i didn't want people to finish this and think like why the hell didn't they talk about that really obvious thing we already did that months ago um so let's start with uh the other guy that this book is about for a, a big portion of the time that's phil jackson i read somewhere or heard somewhere, read or heard in my research for this, that you went and spent the day with him in Montana and that at first he wasn't into it and you kind of broke him down a bit. Tell me about spending a day with hmm. Phil Jackson in Montana. I wouldn't say I broke it down. Yeah, or I wouldn't him. say I broke him down. What a happened little, is, um, right. yeah. Well, so um, basically uh, I really wanted, obviously, to get Phil Jackson. I thought he was an important voice. And... Um, I know Jeannie Buss a little, the owner of the Lakers, from working on Showtime. And I emailed her, and I was like, do you have any advice? How She's to date him also. How, do you have yeah. any advice how to get Phil? And she said, well, let me email him and see what he says. And she wrote me back and said, all right, Phil said you can email him and set something up. And I emailed him, and he said, when would you want to talk? And I said, could I come and do it in person? And he's like, yeah, sure. So I flew to Montana, and I met him in a coffee shop. And he, I am like, hey, thank you so much for doing this. And he goes, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. Oh. And I was like, well, fine. You know, that's not so good. And I'm, I'm really like, well, this might be a half hour of crap. And then he's like, I was thinking I was going to take you for a ride around Flathead Lake. I'll show you around. I was like, great. Flathead Lake was about a three-hour drive. And we stopped for lunch. And after that, he's like, um, you want to come back to my house? I was like, sure, great. Go back to Phil Jackson's house. We're sitting on the porch. It's like a cat climbing all over him. It's kind of funny. Um, At one point, he accidentally, he was on a rocking chair. I just remember this. I haven't said this. He was in a rocking chair, and he rocked back and accidentally caught the cat's tail underneath the rocking chair. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. Um, Then he's like, I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to take a nap. You want to get dinner later? I was like, great. So I ended up having this like eight-hour day with Phil Jackson. I like won the, you know, hundred thousand dollar raffle prize on the day with Phil Jackson in Montana. Wait a minute, and, what did um, you do while he was napping? 
Did you go back to your hotel? I or? went back to my hotel. Oh, okay, all right. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I wasn't spooning. Like, <laughs> I wasn't spooning, Phil Jackson. I <laughs> went back to my hotel. I wasn't sure if you were, like, go out uh, by the pool or, like, waiting for <laughs> No. No, I just met him for dinner. Later. Okay. Gotcha. And uh, and uh, I actually lied to him. It's funny. He, I, We were done with the meal, and he was insistent on paying. And I was like, I was like, no, I'm, they'll, they'll reimburse me. Of course, no one's reimbursing you. You just get your book advance. But I didn't want him paying for dinner. I just thought that was crap. So, um. But he was great and it was cool and it was amazing and it was just really fun. And it wasn't like, it wasn't the best interview material wise for the book. It was very good, but I'm not saying it was the best, but um, it was just really satisfying to have that kind of experience. And every now and then when you do this job, you have moments where you're like, man, this is just a great job. This is just a really cool profession and that you get to do this, you know, don't take it for granted because it's, it's kind of, you know, not that many people get to do that kind of thing. It's cool. Well, that's awesome. And then you spent your time with Shaq at inside the NBA, right? Weren't you on set with him at? Yeah, I went to him. Yeah, I went to him in Atlanta, and um, he was great too. He um, a couple of things that stand out from that experience is uh, number one, he was drinking a soda, and his hands are so ridiculously preposterously big that it looked like he was drinking from a mini soda can. You know, like a, almost like a toy soda can. Right. But it was a soda. Um, number two, he, um, at one point we were talking and his, uh, his daughter FaceTimes him and he just excused himself and he's in the same room and he's like, Hey baby, what's going on? And she's like, daddy, I just want to tell you that so-and-so's mother died. It was someone she knew, a friend, her mom died. It's so sad. And Shaq goes to his daughter and he's like, uh, listen, Make sure you know. Make sure she knows I'll be paying for the entire funeral. Do not let them pay for anything. Just send me the bill. I'm taking care of the funeral. Click, and then write back to me. Like it was just this really amazing little moment, sliver of a moment of a really compassionate guy, and he, he's clearly a compassionate human being. Um, and then the, the other thing that was kind of funny is, remember, this is all obviously before Kobe died. Um, I said to him at one point, I was like, one thing I've always found kind of funny. This was actually the last question I asked him. I was like, you know, you used to have all these nicknames, but it was always kind of a joke. You know, it'd be like the big Aristotle, Shaq Diesel, Superman, but it it was always a joke. And um, it's funny, he called himself, when he would play, he was playing, at one point in the playoffs, he played against uh, Sabonis and I think Vlade back-to-back, and he nicknamed himself the Big Deporter. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how that would go over right now, but it's funny. So um, Hopefully people will laugh about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said... um, I said you always had a you always had a you always had a wink to it all. It was always like kind of with dumb with a laugh and a, and a knowing. And I said, but it seems like Kobe like he nicknamed himself Black Mamba, and he actually thought of himself as the Black Mamba. Yeah, like yeah. And and he said to me, I was like, that's just always struck me. And he goes, Bro, now you know what I was dealing with. And that was it. That was that was the last thing he said to me, Bro. Now you know what I was dealing with. And I just thought that was kind of a cool little moment of acknowledgement that Kobe was kind of a pain in his ass. And right. then the, the, what I thought was beautiful, what I thought was interesting is Kobe died and Shaq was freaking devastated and crushed. And he felt like he really lost an important part of his life. And it kind of is an interesting reminder that you can not see eye to eye to someone, someone not consider someone to be a close friend, but consider someone sort of someone who is along for the ride in this, these slivers of time we, we spent, spent on earth. And just think he felt that kinship for him. And at the same time, probably didn't like him that much. There's a lot there. But one thing I want to say is that 
I love hearing people as fortunate as Shaq are as generous as Shaq. You know, I like to think in my mind, you know, if I was that wealthy, I'd be doing this and doing that for this person and that person. So, you know, it's really easy for us to spend other people's money like that. You know, but I do like mm-hmm. I do like to hear when, you know, stories of people being really generous. I just like that for whatever reason. So good for Shaq. Um and then the other thing Wait, he um Yeah. But I just want to say his um there's a recurring theme in the book. I, I mean, obviously you've seen it, but like he's ridiculous. I mean, he is a ridiculously generous human being and he has flaws like we all do and he wasn't a loyal husband. And he had, he definitely had his things, right? But from I mean, my favorite thing, one of my absolute favorite things in the book is Mark Madsen arrives with the Lakers. Mark Madsen is a Mormon who went on a mission. Pretty sure he's a virgin at this point. And I think about when AC Green joined the Showtime Lakers as a famous virgin out of Oregon State. Mm-hmm. And the Lakers just made it a mock. They just mocked him and ridiculed him. And Mark Madsen comes, and Shaq just takes it upon himself to set Mark Madsen up with Mormon women. And they'll be on a plane, and the flight attendant is walking by, and Shaq will be like, hey, excuse me, are you Mormon? No. Okay, never mind. You know, like, I just think he's so freaking endearing and such a decent guy and really wants to do well and see people happy. It's a very special, it's something really special about that guy. Well, you know what's really interesting about the book? If it is, if we're going to concede that it is the Shaq and Kobe book, uh, and if that means... That, I'm not conceding Okay, that. but I, I, it is... I'll let you concede. Okay, I'm it is conceding. to me. Yeah. Uh, and if it is the Shaq okay. and Kobe book, it automatically becomes the Shaq versus Kobe book, right? Because that's just the nature of their... Okay the nature of their relationship, Shaq is the more likable one in the book. You really, yeah. really like Shaq in the book and Kobe, you kind of just like, I felt like a lot of times it's like, well, that's just how Kobe is or that's just who he is or, you know, whatever. But Shaq is the way more likable one. There's no doubt about that. I agree. I agree. Let me ask you this about Kobe. It's kind of a Kobe death question, but I was thinking about okay. s- sweetness so you know that's my yeah. favorite, right? That's my number one seed Perlman book. You know, that's, that's not, where does this go in the seeding? I hate to ask that. Where does this go in the seeding? Mm. Well, above Showtime. Like am I slipping? Do you feel like no. I'm slipping? No, I feel like well, I, my best days are behind me. No, but it's unfair. It's I mean, it's not going to be better than your dream book, right? I mean, it's in an interesting spot being the one after football for a buck. You know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, it's in the upper half. I mean, I think, no, all right, if I'm just going to do a quick ranking, I mean, Bonds, yeah, and, go ahead. Bonds and Clemens are the, the in the bottom, the bottom two, whatever order, doesn't matter. Okay. Then Showtime is probably next for me. I'm going from the bottom up. Okay. I don't know why I'm going from the bottom up. But That's okay. Showtime for whatever, I'm just the least interested in that. Yeah, I get it. Because um, I'm not a basketball guy. And let's see what would be next from the bottom up. You got gunslinger. You got yeah. this book. Probably gun, guns, yes. gunslingers next. Oh. Um, then. Oh, the bad guys one is also there. Right. Then the Mets and the Cowboys. Again, those are kind of yeah. an either or, you know, Yeah. but they're like, the, the, and then this? Then, then the, well, okay. I would say this, Cowboys and Mets are very, very equal and similar to me. They would be like a tier. Yeah. You know, they would be a yeah. tier. And then I think above that, you know, is football for a buck and sweetness. 
Not funny. Um, yeah. but sweetness is my Don't favorite. Care. And one thing that I've always done is stand up for that book and be, I've always been really annoyed that you had a bad experience promoting it because of the way people who didn't read it reacted to it, right? Based on a small part of it that they read in Sports Illustrated or wherever it was. Maybe it was there, maybe it was somewhere else. Yeah. Are you at all worried that people can read what you wrote about Kobe, the truth, and read it through the lens of Kobe's no longer with us? I'm real defensive about anything anyone says about Kobe now. And that turns this into another sweetness scenario where people are unfairly, you know, coming at you the way they did during the sweetness run. Um, did I ask yeah, that right? Do you know what like I mean even... by that? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. 100%. All right. 100%. Um, the only word I would say I don't agree with it, oddly, is unfairly. Like, I think... Um, Oh, I thought it was unfair. I understand. Well, here, no, no, no. I'm not saying with sweetness. I'm saying like, so let's say you're like a diehard Kobe fan. And you freaking love Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant means the world to you and his legacy means the world to you. And that death is still really sharp for you and still sort of does something to you and digs down deep. And here's this guy and he comes out with a book. And yeah, he wrote it before Kobe died, but he could have published it later. He could have pushed it back. They decided not to push it back. And why would they push publish it the same year he died? Like, why would they do that? That's just is so unfair. And you're going to go into his, his, his rape allegations. How is that fair? Like what, why are you doing that? He died. That's not fair. Like, I don't agree with that take, but I do understand it. You know, like I do get it. Um, people are fiercely loyal to athletes and to stars and to Kobe out here. People are very loyal to him. And, um, reading those, I read, I actually, my mom does not care about sports at all. And I told her, you should just read the Kobe, the chapters about Kobe and the sexual assault. Cause I just think you'll find it interesting. And I reread it too, just cause I told her to reread it. It's hard. Like it's, it's a lot harder. It was hard when he was alive to read and write. And it's harder that he's dead because it's really freaking ugly, you know, and it's like piercing. So I don't want to catch grief for it. I'm sure I'll catch some might be bad. I don't really know. I, I never enjoy it, but, um, I understand it and I would understand people being upset. I think they would be justified in their feelings. That's fair. I just, I hope that if they do feel that way, they've at least read it. Like, I think that's why I say it was unfair because I know Will Bond, you know, I know he didn't read it. You know, he's just, that's, that's, I guess what I felt was unfair about the sweetness is that it was coming from people who clearly didn't read the book, you know, and just got defensive and put you down over it. I mean, there's already been a few people and I don't know why I can't remember who it was. Chris Russo keeps coming in my head, but I don't think it was him. At least a few people have already caught some, some shrapnel for, you know, basically saying like, look at Kobe was complicated. This was good. This was the bad, you know, and maybe at the time it was just, it was really too soon, you know, that when, like, I didn't think whoever it was, I don't know why I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Chris Russo, maybe it was someone else. But whoever it was, you know, they did, I didn't think they did anything wrong. But, you know, I think it is a fair point to say, yeah, I think the people who are calling him on this, they're wrong. But I do understand where they're coming from. Um, so I think that that's sure. fair, fair to say, too. 
Um, I um one thing I did not wait. One thing I didn't like was um, and it's not. I don't think it's because I was writing the book, though. Maybe it was like there was definitely people who, you know, Kobe dies, and it's not that day. Then the next day, it's like if we're going to talk about Kobe, we need to talk about the rape. We need to talk about the allegations. We have to talk about it. And I just like I kept thinking over and over again. You know what? He's not coming back. He's dead. We can give his family a little bit of time before we dig deep into everything he did bad. Like, we don't need to talk about this today. We don't need to talk about it tomorrow. We can give it a little time. And I did think there was, there were certain people who were like, no, we're not, we cannot just, we can't just make this guy an angel, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we're not making him an angel. We're just allowing people a little time. People are kind of devastated and it is okay to be human and to allow people a little time to sort of grieve and let the family breathe and let the family get their, get their feet. So, um, that actually did bother me after he died. Uh, the need to immediately weigh on, weigh in on Kobe Bryant and sexual assault. Right. Well, I guess t- context would be important there. You know, I don't know what prompted it. Um, you know, maybe if someone said to that person, like, so looking back on his life, how would you put it into perspective? You know, it depends, I guess, the way it came up. But um, yeah. I do agree with you, and it's a little bit of a different point than you're making, but. I think about this a lot on the statue issue. Um, you know, we don't build statues for the worst thing someone did. You know, generally speaking, we build them for the best thing they did, usually. Um, you yeah. know, we're very complicated as human beings, all of us. You know, so um, I don't think. I agree. You know, I don't um, think doing something wrong or having a bad part of your life it doesn't erase all the good parts of your life, you know, but that's maybe a different conversation. Also, yeah. I mean, also like, I mean, I, I spent so much time researching that stupid sexual assault case mm-hmm. and, um, it's painful because I mean, the honest, the honest thing is I'm pretty, my opinion. And obviously I wasn't there. Um, I think he raped her and I don't think he thought he was raping her. I swear to God, I think he was a superstar athlete who was in Colorado and here's this attractive young woman who's working the front desk and he asks her for a tour of the hotel. Then he says, why don't you come back to my room? She comes back to my room and they start making out and things start happening. And she's not happy about this, but he's Kobe Bryant. And he thinks this is all whatever. And, and I just think it doesn't excuse him at all. Like, I think he raped her. I do. If you ask me, what do I think? I think he sexually assaulted her. Do I think he thought he was sexually assaulting her? I don't. I think either it was a sense of entitlement of an athlete or a jerk. Now, I don't know. But it's, it's such a weird and complicated and convoluted thing. Um, I still don't know what to make of it totally. Yeah, it's definitely a very complicated part of his life. Um, and he's a complicated guy, obviously. And I think we got here just by saying, and I'll stand by this, you know, he's not the most likable. Not only is he not as likable as Shaq, he's just not all that likable. There's certain things that I admire about him through reading the book. You know, mm-hmm. certain achievements and certain things that he accomplished, but... 
I mean, it's it, it reminded me a lot of the Jordan documentary, which I mean was the most overrated piece of documentary ever made. But I did watch all ten parts, unfortunately. <laughs> and I uh, liked it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, you must have been desperate you know for why entertainment I at the time. You know why I enjoyed it because I was desperate for entertainment <laughs> yeah. at the time, and I also I loved seeing. Um, I just enjoyed being reminded how good Jordan was. As dumb as that sounds, it was well, kind it of had a nice reminder of like, man, this guy was really good. And it had its moments. I mean, that video of him going up to Larry Bird after Game Seven, and that like little piece. Oh, of it was awesome! Ama- like stuff like that was amazing. Like, and of course, ending it with Present Tense by Pearl Jam was one of the best decisions a documentary, you know, filmmakers ever made. Oh, that was a big flaw. <laughs> you, you, I thought you, that was a big flaw. I, fi- I figured you would. I, I personally, I thought it killed. I was looking for Hall and Oates. You were looking for Hall and Oates, Oates yeah. Right yeah. yeah. Uh, but. What was my point? Oh, my point was that Jordan was also unlikable, um, yeah. e- even in the whitewashed version of of uh, the retelling of that story. He was pretty unlikable in it, but that didn't mean I I didn't you know like you said, um, wasn't amazed by how great he was, you know because it, you know it's interesting. I I think in a way, I might be fooling myself here. Um, I think the big difference between Walter Payton and Kobe Bryant is when I came along and wrote the Peyton biography, there was nothing ever anywhere really negative about Walter Payton. I thought of this. He was a great husband. Yep. He was a great businessman. He wasn't depressed. He was always happy. He'd sign every, like, unblemished. And Kobe Bryant, factually, I come into this book, the blemishes are unknown. It's not a shocker. And I do think that's a big difference. Yeah, I thought of that. I thought of that point. Um, and I, I agree. I had already, I had thought of that. Let me ask you this. When you think of each of your books, we just kind of went through them. I feel like they're kind of known for something, you know, like when I, or at least there's something I think of when I think of each one, you know, I think of the Mets one. I think of Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry smoking crack somewhere in Harlem during the world series parade. You know, or what? It was just good and it wasn't strawberry. Okay, strawberry was at the parade. Uh, apologies. Yeah. Apologies to get Straw. Yes, Don't apologies to Straw. Yeah. I made a mistake there. But I got to freshen up on that book. Uh, yeah. You know, when I think of the Cowboys book, I think of the Little White House. You know, when I think yeah. of um, Favre, I think of his interaction with Aaron Rodgers. You know, whatever. What do you think is going to be the thing from this one? And then I'll tell you what I think hmm. it is. You're talking about like the almost like the singular. Now you're not just saying like the Shaq Kobe relationship, but an actual. No, one. just like what's going to be the thing at the end of this that when we get some distance from this book, like what do you think most people are going to remember about it most? Like, is it as simple as oh he wrote the Shaq Kobe book, or is it going to be you know something more specific? I mean, it might just be hmm. that that kind of boring simple thing, but you know. I don't know. What do you think, actually? What do you think? I'm not, I'm not really, uh, I don't have anything immediately in my head. What do you got? Well, I think, I think, okay, I think it is a Shaq and Kobe thing, but I think what it's going to be for me when I look back on this book, what I'm always going to think of is I don't need to know, you know, when I think back on the relationship and it breaking down and why they didn't win more together, why it stopped when it did, I am going to take Shaq's side. And that's going to be, oh, you know, that's going to be what I'm going to remember about this book is that Shaq was right in the Shaq Kobe 
fight. You know, like he was the part. Of, he was the part of the raps. His rap, his fire rap, is going to be the one that like I relate to. Like I think he was. That's what I'm going to look back on in this book. It's not just going to be that you wrote the Shaq and Kobe book because I think it will be that, but I think that it's going to be when we get to these debates about why or whatever. I'm going to side with Shaq because of reading this book. Do you think that's Shaq, what I think of? Do you think? Do you think if Shaq reads this book, he likes the book? Yes, he's awesome in it. He's awesome. Yeah, he's kind of awesome. In yeah, it. He's, he's yeah. It's like everything I thought was cool about Shaq. It's almost like the, the those words are in highlighter in the book somehow. You know what I mean? Like I just feel yeah. like, yeah. Oh, I would, I would be shocked if 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 he doesn't love every pretty much every word of this book. There is a um, there's a defining quote. There's one quote in this book that to me is the quote of the book, and you wouldn't get it if I gave you a hundred guesses. But it's um, after they lose to Detroit in Game Five, and the series is over, and it's two thousand four. And they have a little after party in Detroit, just even though they lost. And Kobe Bryant says to Kareem Rush, I ain't playing with that motherfucker again. I actually consider that like this like money hanging quote. And when Kareem Rush said it to me, it was really funny because Kareem Rush was a young member of the Lakers. And he was like, this was a great season, man. We made the NBA Finals. I think we would have won if Carl Malone didn't get hurt. I can't believe how lucky I am. This is awesome. We got Shaq, we got Kobe, we got Phil. I can't believe this. And then Kobe walks in. And it's basically like, I'm not playing with that motherfucker ever again. And Kareem Rush is like, wait, what? what? <laughs> like, wait, did I misread this entire thing? <laughs> and you did. So funny. I love that quote. Love yeah. that moment. And that is a cla- that's a classic uh, pro and book moment there, too. You know, is getting that from Kareem Rush, you know. Um, Sitting in a Starbucks with Kareem Rush. Yeah. Here's what I can tell you about Kareem Rush. Sure. I just told someone this the other day. Kareem Rush might be the best-looking human being I've ever sat across from. Oh. He was ridiculous. And I'm sitting across from this guy and I'm like, on my best day and his worst day, he will always look a million times better than me. It was like every now and then you're in the presence of someone who's just really good looking and it's almost intimidating. Right? I didn't know anything about Cream Rush, but I just remember sitting across from him in a Starbucks and he's wearing sweats. And I'm like, this is a definitively handsome human being and it's almost intimidating being around a guy this good looking. Yeah, good I, I can see it. I just, you know, obviously I brought up some pictures. I mean... Yeah, I could see it. But what percentage of people do you feel like you feel that way with, though? Like, is that a unique to Kareem? None. None? No, it's just it's unique to him. I mean, Seth Davis. I don't remember the other many. way. You're much more handsome than yeah, Seth, Seth Davis. Davis. I mean, the thing, about, the thing about Seth is great is when you get him on your podcast, he's so freaking good. Right, that'll so, never happen. You know, he's good looking. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, I don't think that many guys where I've been like, or women, where I'm like, this is one of the best. I'm trying to think who I've been around. You've been around a like, I probably have more celebrity access than you have in my. Well, I have I have, a, I have a similar experience. I was once backstage with Sebastian Bach, um, a good friend. <laughs> swear to God, a, Skid Row man. Yeah, a good, Skid Row. so he he had just left Skid Row about a year, and he was doing a solo show in Buffalo. And a friend of mine was at Buffalo State. The Buff State Record was the name of the paper there, and he did okay. he had set up you know some time to speak with. Uh, Sebastian Bach and so we're in his his locker room behind this club in Lackawanna New York um, which is not one of the nicer suburbs here in Buffalo but so it's it's so we're in this this I guess what I'm saying is kind of a dumpy place Uh, but we're in his locker room and and I'm thinking to myself like he's prettier than most girls first of all like he's 
You know, he's got the long body. He just looked like real pretty. And then his wife, midway through, had his wife at the time, he's not his wife anymore. She shows up with a box of chicken for him. And she gives him the chicken, and he's eating the chicken, and we're talking. There was rumors he might be in Van Halen at the time. And, you know, we're kind of talking about, you know, whatever. And uh, I I look to my right, and she's in the bathroom, but the door of the bathroom is wide open. And there's a, a mirror as long as the bathroom or as long as the door and she's completely nude and wow and i'm looking at her and then i look back at him and he sees and he's kind of giving me the thumbs up and i'm like i'm like dude your wife is is really hot and he's he's like well yeah man that's why she's my wife and i and it was just like, wow. hilarious at the time like whew. and she was i that's mean pretty amazing you know my wife aside, the most beautiful girl I've ever seen naked. I mean, just unbelievable. Like I just couldn't even believe wow. I couldn't even believe it, you know. But um Yeah. Yeah, that's my Sebastian Bach story. And then we he's like, Do you guys want to hear anything tonight? We're like, Oh, we want to hear this song called The Threat and then later <laughs> during the show he's like, I was I was backstage with these fuckers from the Buffalo College earlier. Uh, and they want to hear the threat. Oh my God. <laughs> so, it's really funny. <laughs> really funny. That's if you ever awesome. get a chance to spend some time with Sebastian Bach, you should do it. He's he's a true character I'll, of I'll rock and roll. That. He's a true character of rock and roll. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you something else, and now I'm distracted by that ridiculous Sebastian Bach story. Um, son of a bitch. All right, let's do something else before it. It'll come back to me. Okay, let me ask you this because I had John Pessa on my show, who recently wrote a book called Yogi. Um, okay. And John Pessa's Twitter feed is like yours. Um, and I asked him if when he's writing a book, or when he has a book out, you know, he spent five years on Yogi, worked really hard on it. It's actually really good, too. Like, I, it's one of those books where I didn't, when I opened it, I'm like, what am I doing? I do not want to read this. And then, you know, I read it all and yeah. enjoyed it. Um, I said to him, like, your Twitter feed is what it is, and it's going to create a situation where it's not going to be the best place to promote a book. Do you regret that at all? And, of course, he said he didn't. And I remember back to, to Gunslinger for you specifically. I know for sure there's people who didn't buy Gunslinger because of your Twitter. And I know, yeah, And I know you stand behind it. I know you do. But as a guy who is a self-admitted book whore, who spends so much time on these books, I can feel it. Like, I think what's great about them is I know it's your heart and soul is in it. I know I'm getting your best every book. You don't regret, do you regret it even a little bit? Or maybe regret's not the right word, but do you wish sometimes that at least for this period where you're out working so hard to sell it, you weren't also working against yourself to sell it? Okay, no. It's a good question. The reason I would say no, I would say if there's any regret. Maybe that's a bad word, like, but. No, 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 no. That's a great question. And it's actually perfectly worded. Like it, I understand what you're saying. Um, I regret Twitter as an entire thing. <laughs> Same. Like I hate Twitter. Same. I hate Twitter. And like people are like, so why do you do it? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. Like, Me neither. Because I'm sitting in a room by myself for 10 hours a day and like, it's a way of engaging, right? And it's a way of selling. And like the truth of the matter is, it's a way of outreach. And probably 80% of the PR I'm doing for this book has been generated off of Twitter one way or another. So I don't really know an alternative, but I hate Twitter. I hate social media. Part of the appeal of not writing books anymore 
is so I can just end this account and never be on Twitter again. Yeah. I mean, I really mean that. I mean I it, hate yeah. fucking Twitter. I know you. you do. I'm with it's you. It's funny because, um, wait, who was it? Oh, Verducci was on my podcast recently, and I said, um, how come you're not on Twitter? And he said, because I've yet to have anyone say to me, you know what you're really missing out on? <laughs> on Twitter. It's awesome. Yeah. And he's right. Anyone on it doesn't like it. My friend Russ Bankson, great writer, longtime Slam Magazine editor, recently quit Twitter. He's like, I just, it was too much. It was just sucking me in too much. Yeah. I get that. So, but the thing is, my regret with Twitter is that I tweet too much and it's a time suck, right? That's it. I do not regret if I'm losing some sales off of it because I do think ultimately, I'm not saying across the board, I know not across the board. I think ultimately people seem to like even some of my conservative friends, believe it or not, that like I'm a journalist who is unencumbered by working for Fox News or Sports Illustrated or ESPN or whatever. Like I actually can state my opinions on Twitter. And I think people kind of like that. And the other thing is, is I apologize a lot. Um, like a lot, a lot. I apologize a lot. My apology ratio is very high. Um, and I think ultimately people kind of respect that. And I've actually made a lot of friends on Twitter who have nothing in common with me, who, you know, have opposite political beliefs, et cetera, because I'll say something snarky and then I'll feel really bad about it. And I'll be like, you know, I'm really sorry about that. That was way out of line. And you end up kind of forming bonds. So I just hate Twitter, but mm -hmm. I don't regret being sort of liberal and, you know, anti-Trump or whatever. Like I just, I don't know any other way to do it. I don't know. So no. Fair enough. But I hate Twitter. And for this book, you might be all right. I, I do know that, you know, you lost people in Wisconsin. I mean, whatever, I guess. You know what, though? And maybe We're you gained some. Maybe some people bought it just because of that, maybe. Maybe it balances out. You know, and maybe some of the people yeah, who, who swear to our face that they'd never read that book read it anyway, you know. Maybe they bought it at the... Uh... You mean they buy it at the uh, at the, the five and dime? Bucks, yeah, they so. bought it at the five and dime, like uh, Brian Adams. Yeah, I mean, if it were ruining my career, if it were if Twitter were ruining my career, obviously I'd have to. And there have been moments and times where I'm like, I'm taking a week off, or I'm not doing this, or this is just too much. And it's always good to do that to recharge. Um, I don't know. I just don't know another way. I don't know what to say. Verducci's on my short list of guests I'm most proud of. You you have any interest in why? Well, I would think because he's pretty freaking elusive and hard to get. Exactly. When he's I He's actually elusive. When I started this, um, and I had the, whoever the first guest from Sports Illustrated was, I guess Deutsch. Um, the next day, whoever was doing PR for Sports Illustrated at the time reached out to me and said he wanted to talk to me. And we talked on the phone, and he said, you know, you're more than welcome to book anyone from SI you can, which, I, you know, at the time, I didn't know I needed his permission. I probably didn't, but he was giving it mm -hmm. anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you did. And yeah. uh, he said, but I will tell you, there's no chance you're going to get Verducci. He's like, you know, he says no to oh. Francesa. He's like, I can't get him to go on Francesa sometimes. Like, you're not you're not going to get him. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And he's been on, you know, five, six, whatever times. Um, So for whatever reason, I maybe he was just wrong and there's no reason to be proud of that. Maybe. But, um, you know, he's done it. And then he did it again. Like, I, I was wondering, like, is it just a fluke? But no, he's done it a few times. Uh, another thing you mentioned there that I wanted to say something about was 
when you were talking about um, Verducci. What was the other thing? Why do I keep getting lost? We keep going on, and I'm like forgetting. Because you're getting older, man. You're I just turned older. 40. I just turned 40. Is this what happens? Yeah. You turn 40, and that's it? Your, yes. your brain's to shit? Yes, factually. It pisses me Welcome off. Welcome to the club. It's when fine. I started this show, people thought I was young. You know, I get a lot of like, oh, yeah. you got to go on with those young guys from Buffalo. It was me and Don at the time, you know. And I would say, like, you know, I'm not that young. <laughs> but they're like, no, no, that's still pretty young. Yeah. You know, now there's no chance of getting that that thought. Uh, it's, it's um, you know what I hate? I hate being called so. Jesus, I hate getting called so. And I used to be like, when I was like late 20s, early 30s, I'd be like, no, nah, man, I'm not sir. Just call me so-and-so. And now I'm 48 years old. I actually am sir. And that freaking. My most hated yeah, thing is not... Mr. Steve. Like Ugh, when I worked terrible. in the schools, I was always Mr. Bennett. I hated anyone who went by Mr. in their first name. And now having a daughter, you know, you meet kids, you know, like, you, you know, I'll take her somewhere and, you know, like, oh, my friend has a kid and the friend will introduce me like, oh, say hi to Mr. Steve. And I right away, I'm like, nope, just Steve is fine. Just Steve is great. You know, I don't want yeah, to be called exactly. that. I don't like that at all. Um, all right. Exactly. Jeff Perlman is one of the main men here. Uh, he's been uh, doing this for a long time, and he's too nice to me, probably in the top five also of people who regrets that I have their phone number. Um, who else? Who else would be on that list? Well, Joe Buck has got to be number one, right? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I gotta think he's number one. I actually asked him for a favor. Uh, oh, this is something I wanted. Oh uh, yeah, he gave you. He put. He told me. He told me about that. Yeah, he what gave a me. Nice a, guy. He got me a field pass. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's something you did. You mentioned that you did that. I'm really bad at. I don't know how to leverage right. my contacts into contacts with people I don't have. Right, like what you did with Genie Bus. I'm really bad at that. Like, I know oh, I'm missing out yeah. on people because I'm afraid to say to whoever that I'm in contact with, hey, what should I do to get this guy that you know really well or this girl that you know, you know, whatever. I'm really bad at that. I don't, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like it. to do it. Yeah. yeah. You just, um, it's just a matter nobody of, likes it. yeah, you just got to do it, right? People, people, I mean, them, it's kind of phrasing. Like, when I say, when I say to Gene Bus, um, do you have any idea what would be my best way to approach Phil? Right. Obviously, I'm kind of hoping she says, "Well, let me try." Yeah. You know, like you're kind of hoping that, but you're not going. You're not going to ask that way. You know. So like, it's a lot of like, "Hey, if you were me, you're kind of getting so and so," uh, and you kind of hope it works out. Sometimes it does. I know. I, I don't know. I hate asking for favors. I asked you to help me with Kyle Brandt. I don't remember how that went down, but I know I got him. Did you get Kyle? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and he's we, a great guy. Kyle and I still talk, but he won't come on anymore. He'll be like, uh, "Has he, he refused?" Oh, uh, sort of. Yeah, he's like, "Hey, I love texting with you or tweeting with or you know emailing with you, but I don't know. I've done it twice. I think I'm just going to spread out and do other stuff." Which I'm like, "All right, but you know, like, like yeah. you don't mean forever, do you? Like, come on, we got to do it again, like someday, like sometime, you know." Yeah, maybe not. Might mean forever, but you he know might. What? Yeah, but he's really nice. I don't have anything bad to say about him. He's really, really nice. He's, he's great. A great to guy. Me. Yeah. He also was like, also like a dad with two kids who's working from home and who's you know like we all have our shit. So who the hell knows? But he's a great guy. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. No, he's great. Uh, oh, I I don't have any. The only there's very few people who don't come on that I have a problem with. You know, Seth Davis is one. Seth because, Davis. Because he made a point God to be a dick about Seth it. Davis. He made a point to be a dick about it. 
Yeah, sorry. You know, but um, twice on two different occasions. He did it to me yeah. once, and then he did it to me again when you made the connection. When you said, come on, you yeah. guys. And then he did it again. Brutal. But um, You should just not invite him. You should send him an email saying, I'm not inviting you to be <laughs> I think that's kind of how I left it. I think I pretty much left it yeah. like, look it, never mind. Clearly, you're yeah. never going to do it, so yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. The book is called Three Ring Circus. So let's sell the book now. Let's focus on that. Who cares about me? It's the best book ever written. Three Ring Circus. And it's not even out yet, is it? When is it out officially? The 20-something. Uh, Tuesday, 22nd. Tuesday, so, the 22nd. If you order it now, it's come in. If you order it now, it's getting there on time. This will probably go out Monday. So, or, Say again? I said this will probably go out Monday or Tuesday. One of those oh, yeah. days. So. A couple of people told me they've already gotten it. Like Barnes & Noble has been putting it out in their stores. Oh, yeah. I don't Pre- care. It sounds good to me. Pre-ordering a book is the way to go because it seems like as soon as they get them, they just mail them. Yeah. You know? That is true. I are you is your book company still doing the like when you just they're just distributing the PDFs? Have you like have you guys sent any actual books out? This is a, a COVID trend I do not like. Um, I don't either, but I think it'll stick because it's so much cheaper for them. I know, but um, I like Elway I got a physical No, it sucks. Yeah, I got a copy of a physical Wait. copy of Elway. So I was hoping like, oh, I hope this is maybe like maybe they're over that now. Like that was the, that was the it's first one. Bad. Oh, and the Dynasty, the the um, Jeff Benedict book. Those two oh. I got physical. Yeah, you copies. love that book, right? That was great. Yeah, oh, I yeah. love that. He was yeah. nice too. Yeah, he was yeah, really sure good. Was. He was on another time. It wasn't that good. I told him, but he was really good this time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, all right. What uh, what else? Jeff Proman on Twitter. Track lightly there. Um, what else? How else do you want? Is there anything else you want to mention? What's up with the uh, What's up with the the HBO show? I think they're going to start filming in January. You know, everything closed out here, right? But I think they're going to try to reopen. So hopefully, they shot the pilot. They've written the season. They just got to tape it. What was you your know? role? So, Did you have any I, role? My role was I wrote the book. That was it. Yeah, I got a. Um, well, no, we got cameos in the in the pilot. My wife and I and my kids were all in the pilot. Oh, sweet! And it was amazing. I played a writer. I played a gawky journalist, so it was a big stretch. <laughs> what did Emmett play? And um, Emmett and Casey were extras on a movie set. Okay. And my wife, Catherine, was um, the uh, Rod Thorne, the GM of the Bulls, his uh, assistant. Sweet. Did you guys see the pilot? Yeah, did you get line. to watch it? Yeah, it yeah. was amazing. It's good? It's awesome. Yeah. It was one of, the highlights, one of the highlights of my career, if not life, was you're sitting there, and it's like Adam McKay and it's this awesome high quality product and it's based on your book. And yeah, freaking, you know, you got to cherish those moments. You don't get, you don't get very many of those. And that was absolutely amazing. Yeah. That's freaking awesome. I can't wait to watch it. If you could, if, yeah, what what would be good. the, what would be the other book you'd want to do as a show? Is there another one? It's gotta be football for a buck, right? Um, yeah, I think so. And I feel like that in a lot of ways, like, I feel like the overabundance of Trump material in the world almost makes it harder to do. Right. I actually have always envisioned that as a not not doing Trump, like doing like just taking the San Antonio gunslingers and doing it. And maybe Trump could be some side character of like one of the greedy owners or something. But I don't think I don't think you need a US of L movie or US of L TV show to be about Trump. 
I think it'd just be about the weirdness of that league. Right. If you could do a if you can do better call Saul and like what they're six seasons into that and Brian Cranston's never appeared, you know, I think that yeah. you know, you could do it. I love yeah. everything about football for a buck that isn't the Trump stuff. <laughs> like I was the Trump stuff though, I just want to say I just want to say to be clear. He was running at the time, so it wasn't like I was like trying to make a political point. I swear to God, no. But I, I didn't, just, um, remember we were already fatigued. You know, yeah, I, I, I think, was fatigued too. Yeah, I think we've said before that one of the worst things about Trump is how he somehow can make everything about Trump. You know, and it I was like, I just like, oh, I just want to read this Perlman book. I got to read about this knucklehead again. Um, I know, but it, but it doesn't take away from the book. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I just enjoyed yeah, no, all I'm... the other stuff better. Okay, so if not football yeah, for a it. buck, what would be the other one? Like, I think the Cowboys one could be uh, really good. There's a lot the there. Cowboys one, Mets one could be good. Yeah. I actually think, I actually think Sweetness, I think his life is really cinematic and the highs and coming from the desegregation of his school system in Alabama, in uh, Mississippi. Sure. And like running the hills and winning the Super Bowl and having the speed on illness and like, I always thought his life, it's funny because his, um, I really liked his kids. I really liked Jarrett Payton a lot. I don't think they felt great about the book. Um, they never said anything was wrong in the book. I just think they were, this is their dad's legacy. And I've actually reached out to Jarrett on a couple of occasions. And I've been like, look, if you guys would ever want to team up just to turn your dad's life into a movie, I, I would be all into it. And it's not about the money. I just think it would be great. And uh, I never hear back. So. Well, I would like that one, and I think that the Mets yeah. or the Cowboys would be good too. But at least there is one. Like yeah. we don't have to talk about it as a hypothetical. There will be one. Um, is it an HBO Knock Max? Is it an HBO Max thing, or they want it for a regular HBO? Or is that the no. is HBO regular. Max re- regular now though too? Right. I mean, I know yeah, they have the some exclusive. Guy. I know it's just for HBO regular. Right. Okay. They have exclusive stuff, but I yeah. think anything on HBO Max is HBO too. You know, like I watch Sopranos on HBO Max or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, I just don't know. All right, last thing: Do you know already what you want to do after Bo? No, I have no idea. I'm not just saying that. I actually have no idea because this is unique. That yeah, I just don't know. I think this is very unique that you're on here promoting the current book, and we already know what the next book is. That always happens. I don't always say it, but I always, I'm always working. Right. By the time, but I know I'm always working. I mean, I know. And by what, and and what I mean by I know is like everyone knows. Sometimes I know, but I have to keep it secret. Um, Yeah. I absolutely. I don't do people care. I don't think people care. Like I'm not. No, I think it's silly to keep it secret. I know you've been burned, but like, I think it's silly. No, I'm saying like, I'm just saying like, (laughs) like, I'm just a guy who writes books, so I don't think me writing a Bo Jackson book is a particularly big deal. It is if you're a, if you're a world. fan of Jeff Perlman books. I know this I guy. How many people are that? Twelve people. Jeff, I know this guy. Listen to this, okay? Yes. His favorite baseball team is the Mets. His favorite basketball yeah. team is the Lakers. His favorite football team is the Cowboys. Like he loves Bo Jackson. He had his poster. That's cool. You know, like this guy, me and this guy always joke about how you just write books about shit he likes. I should do, um, 
I'm going to do my next book. is going to be about like the Cleveland Indians, just to fuck with your friend. Just to fuck with that guy. His name is Scott Criscolo. Yeah. You've actually, he has yeah, a podcast. Next book, Cleveland he, Indians. He has a podcast. Well, he has a podcast network actually called Place to Be Nation. You should, uh, you should do it for this book. I don't know what show would make sense. It's a lot of wrestling stuff, but yeah. um, help a guy out, man. I could use all the help. You should book. do. He wants you to do. I know his dream book for you is the, a Big East book, like an '80s Big East book. But oh you, yeah, I've thought about that topic. Yeah, that's a good one. I have. I yeah, I don't know the sales potential, but I think it's a good book. Right. We had that thing last time you were Maybe. on. We were going through all these topics, and you were like, "No, yeah, no, 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 no." You hated every topic I came up with. Yeah, and since then, like Sorry. five of those topics are books, and I'm like, see, I knew doesn't it. mean they're good books. I knew that was a book. <laughs> I knew LA would work. Well, anything can be a book. I knew it. Anything can be a book. Doesn't mean I want to write it. Just not a Perlman book. I'm not saying anything special about a Perlman book. I'm just saying, you know, you got to want to write the subject. You can't just do it because Steve says it's a good book. Well, I don't know about that. I still want. I my my dream is the the Perlman hockey book. Yeah, your dream is never happening. Never say never. Okay. Right? You love that hockey book. You just, sent me a, you just sent me a hockey book that you liked. Oh, yeah. Did you? It's a great book. That's a great book. Yeah, I just don't read fiction. Though. Seriously. I know. It's great. It's really good. See? So you read a hockey guy, book. Not on Twitter. I did. I, I did because a guy I knew wrote it, but I freaking loved it. It was so good. Yeah. There isn't a, like... You know what's weird is I hate basketball relative to the other sports, but probably three of the books that I've liked the most during the podcast era, like doing this, were basketball books. Yeah. Dream Team. What's the other one? What do you got? Dream Team by oh, yeah, uh, that was great. Jack McCollum. Yeah, McCallum. Great McCallum. book. Uh, the, uh, the bad, what's, uh, what's the Leitner book called? The Bad Guy One, I think. It's by Gene Wojciechowski. Oh, that's my book. Oh, oh, Gene Wojciechowski. What's great. his book called? It's a Christian Leitner book. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, the greatest, yeah. the last great game, or something like that. It's yeah. an amazing book. It's freaking sick. He's a great writer. He's a great writer. You want to hear a, a funny Gene sportscaster story? So yeah, my wife's starting to give me the stink eye. So yeah, no, we're done. We're done. Don't worry, we're done. One quick story. No, go ahead. Let yeah. me hear the story. Tell me. No, 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 no. Tell me the story. All right. So Gene. You know, he, 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 we do the, he, he's a part of the book. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. It sends me a book. He signed it and everything for me, which is nice. And, uh, I still need a book from you signed someday. But, um, he signs and, and I, you know, I read it and I love it. And we do this great interview. And I'm thinking, like, oh, yeah, Gene's going to be on here all the time. I emailed this guy once a year for like seven years and he said no seven different ways. It almost got to be a wow. joke to me. Like, I appreciated that he actually yeah. said no because almost nobody says no. It's pretty much yes or I just never hear from the person. But he would always take the time to blow me off. and It got to be kind of funny to me. So then finally, wow. finally he says yes, right? So I'm super yeah. excited. I sit down at the whatever I call him. We do like a 40-minute interview. It's awesome again. You know, like I'm so pumped about it. I go and start to edit it, and it didn't record. Oh, no. It didn't record. It was nothing. Oh, my dog had chewed through a wire, and it made it was impossible. Like I was still getting levels. I was getting everything, so there's no way for me to yeah. know that underneath me was this chewed wire. Um, 
and I was so embarrassed. I didn't even call him or nothing. I just took the L. I'm like, I can't go to him and say that was it. That was just it. I'm just never gonna email again. Wow. Yeah. That's a big bummer. Yeah. He wrote a book. If you want to read a great book, and you can get it on Amazon for probably a nickel or eBay. He wrote a book years ago, years ago, called Pond Scum and Vultures. It's about journalists having to deal with uh, athletes. It was uh, we all had to read it in my sports writing class when I was in college. It's really good. Or at least good. I remember it being really good. Sounds good. Yeah. So, all right. Yep. You want the last word? Because you always get the last word on our text. So I'll give you the last word here. Go ahead. Um, the last word will be that um, despite your love of Pearl Jam, they will never match the excellence of Hall & Oates. And <laughs> while Pearl Jam, have, are they even in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, first ballot. But yeah, okay. Yes. All right. All right. So Pearl Jam in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But it's only in like the little grunge section for those '90s weak bands. Meanwhile, Hall and Oates, Daryl Hall, the greatest vocalist to walk the earth, uh, goes down with the legends. <laughs> okay. Now you can't say anything else. No. Nope. Last word. Yep. You got the last word. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. I want to thank the great Jeff Perlman for being on the show. I appreciate him very much. And I said sort of my friend. You know, he is my friend. But I have this kind of weird, you know, lack of confidence sometimes uh, to call people friends. Uh, But I think, you know, Jeff and I have a close enough relationship now where I can call him my friend. But either way, he's an unbelievable author, and I appreciated his time. And I hope that this book kills it. All right. Book Club Update. We'll do this pretty quickly. So we started with four books, and that's two down. So the first one we uh, read in this kind of fall era was The Dynasty, and that was by Jeff Benedict. You can check that out in the archives, the interview. Uh, And, of course, now Jeff Perlman, Three Ring Circus. Next up uh, will be Jason Cole's book, Elway. Uh, and I was reading this the other night, and it'll be interesting whether or not, and I, I sort of already did, but I was reading Elway, and I found a mistake. So it me- it's talking about John Elway and kind of the twilight of his career, and it says that he was the first person to bring a major sports championship to Colorado. Well, John Elway won his first Super Bowl in 1998, and of course, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup in 1996. So it's not true. Joe Sackick and the 96 Avalanche were the first people to bring a championship to Colorado. Now, to me, that's an obvious mistake. And I sort of kiddingly brought it up to Jason. And I brought it up as like, you know, hey, I'm a hockey guy, you know. Because I don't know if he's saying that the Stanley Cup is not a major sports championship. And that's the way he would say this isn't a mistake. 
there's a famous cartoon that Adrian Dater sent me of Sackick in his bed with the Stanley Cup on his desk and John Elway peering in from the outside. Uh, we'll see what Ed Jason has to say about that. I also kind of talked to Jeff about it and said, you know, is it all right to mention this to people? I don't know if it is or not, but uh, that's up next. After that, we'll do Sooner. Uh, it's by Brandon Sneed, at Brandon Sneed on Twitter. And it's about the career of um, Lincoln Riley, who can't beat Kansas State, apparently. Uh, I'll talk to Brandon about that book soon, but obviously this is we're doing a Sooners interview in a minute. Uh, I'll try to wait a few weeks before doing that one and putting that one up. Uh, but that's the book club update for today. Thanks again to Jeff Proman. And in a second, we'll take a break and we'll come back with Ryan Aber. Our next guest today uh, lives in Oklahoma where he covers uh, the Oklahoma Sooners and Oklahoma athletics in general for the Oklahoman. He also attends Pearl Jam concerts in Oklahoma when there are concerts and Oklahoma is hosting Pearl Jam. He's a good dude and he's making an appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Ryan Aber. Hey Ryan, how you doing today, buddy? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to talk a little bit uh, OU football, uh, college football in general. Uh, we're going to mix in some Pearl Jam and some Gigaton because we haven't talked since <laughs> that came out. But I have to ask you kind of just real in a real general sense from the start. Last week, covering the game, obviously very different from every other game. What what was just your general feel? Like, in 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 the end, at the end of the day, you know all the cliches to kind of describe what I'm asking here. What were your thoughts about it? Well, it was it was weird uh, from the the amount of fans in the stands, twenty five percent at OU, which is a touch over twenty thousand. From the amount of people in the press box, which is twenty five percent of that, and you're spread out and having to either. Uh, you walk over or uh, 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 talk loudly just to talk to the person next to you. Um, always wearing masks. It was it was strange for sure, but it wasn't as weird as I thought it might be. The 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 crowd that was there, I'm sure it was aided by some uh, artificial sound, was louder than I expected. Uh, it, it felt a little bit more normal outside of that than what I expected, but. Uh, strange, I think, is the best uh, best way to describe it for sure. I, I think based on what I've read during the offseason, for the most part, people think that Lincoln Riley has been generally fair about the way he has handled kind of the reporting of things related to COVID-19. But I know that there's been a shift in that now that the season has started. Um, and I've been thinking about it a little bit. And I just wonder what you think. Does he need? Do you think the transparent, the level of transparency, transparency that Lincoln seems to be providing, is it enough? Is it not enough? 
Where do you kind of stand on the way Lincoln has handled that and is now kind of shifting a little bit as the season has started? Oh, I, I think he's, he's handled it great up until the time the season started. I right. think uh, since then, either of the things that he said, he, he said at one point uh, that it was a competitive advantage issue, uh, them announcing – uh, their, their numbers once the season started. But then he came back and said, well, uh, we're, we're sharing these numbers with the other team, and it, it's a privacy issue, and, but which is ridiculous because right. it's not a privacy issue. If right. you just release the same the numbers that you were releasing earlier, and he said, well, people will be – if we release those numbers, people will be digging into you know who those players are that are out. Well – the people who would dig in to who those players are that are out would be digging in anyway. And all you do is make uh, another set of people start digging in when they can't find the numbers and when they're not releasing the numbers. So I I thought it was a little bit disingenuous to give uh, a couple of different reasons that sort of opposed each other. I mean, the reason that they're not announcing it is because they've had positives and and it was easy to announce when the numbers were zero or very low. Right. It's not as easy to announce when you've got, uh, you know, 18 guys on your two deep that miss due to either a positive test or a a COVID uh, contact trace, which is also a two week sit out. So um, I, I would have loved to have known the numbers of the players who tested positive versus those who uh, were contact traced, especially because if those that are contact traced uh, don't ever test positive, then they're subject to either a contact trace, hold, or a, uh, a positive test in the near future. And I know we don't know exactly how long immunity lasts, things like that. There's a lot of other angles that get tied into this thing, but uh uh, I, I just thought he was he was sort of speaking out both sides of his mouth a little bit. Right. You know, I think one thing that has bothered me a little bit in general about how we kind of view COVID-19 is I think we're a little bit too obsessed with cases. And I think that the problem, and I, maybe I'm speaking for Lincoln here, you know, is that if he comes out and says there's eight cases, you know, especially the group that he's dealing with, there's a good chance that also means there's eight people who aren't sick, you know, but these eight cases are treated like eight people, you know, intubated and on their deathbed. And that's just not at OU or, I mean, that just seems to be like in, in Buffalo here, uh, we have the university of Buffalo, right. And, right. uh, when the kids came back to school, they all got tested the first day. So there was a spike in positives that first day because when you bring that many kids back from all over the state, all over the country, there was a big group of kids who were positive. Um, but then now weeks later, as it's been reported, you know, not a single kid from UB has been to the hospital. Uh, but when those numbers came out, there was this hysteria, like how do we allow the school open? You know, what do we do? You know, so I don't know. I, I feel like Lincoln is in a tough spot. I don't, And I don't know, since he is talking about outside of, on both sides of his mouth, it's hard to know exactly. Like, do you, do you think you know exactly what the reason is? No, I mean, because he's given uh, right. uh, 
several. Right. And so what is it, right? The, the real reason, I don't think, is, is included in those several, especially right. because he contradicted one of them directly. So, uh, no, I, I, I think it's difficult because, yes, like you said, you know, these players that are testing positive are, are largely either asymptomatic or, or don't have a ton of symptoms. I, I think the worry is some of the long-term effects and, you know, the myocarditis. And I know that's been uh, gone back and forth with how serious that is and uh, how, how big of an issue it is as far as numbers. But I, I think that's certainly a concern there, as is just the, the spread of this uh, to, to others that aren't college football players, whether it's, you know, their parents they're the, the some on the coaching staff that are you know older uh, things like that so I, I think there's some caution there but like you said you've got to sort of balance that with this notion that uh you know numbers are going to happen especially when you have those intake tests whether it's uh testing for the first time or testing you know as students get back to campus things like that so those numbers are going to go up and you can't freak out about it too much, but you've also got to keep an eye on it and, and make sure that you, you keep it under control. All right, one last thing on this, and then I want to get to football. So Stuart Mandel was on the show earlier in the summer, and he's been on this show since 2011. He was, like, in one of the first five episodes of the show ever. So he's, like, a, you know, he's been a good guy to me for a long time. And it was right around the time that Kyle Brantz, I don't know if you remember this, had put out a tweet kind of saying that – uh the the media was uh, a lot of people in the football media were rooting against football um and i know that stewart took it very personal and we talked about about both sides of it and you know my whole point was that i just feel like with this virus that the 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 the, the thing i learned on the first day of media school right the it bleeds it leads thing has very much been huge in this virus that you know we will report one positive case you know front page but the you know the nhl or something can put out oh we just had ten thousand tests so far in our bubble and haven't had one positive that you don't you don't find that um and you know when i think about the football season yesterday there was a column in the usa today that said that it was the darkest day in the history of the big 10 because they decided to play football you know, which I—I I mean, I don't know. I would have think maybe Sandusky or something might be the darkest day. Um, yeah, or uh, you know, Larry Nasser, right. or Any of the other? I mean, come things, on, the Ohio State deals. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that's gone on. That, yeah, I—I I, I thought that that characterization was pretty ridiculous, honestly. Yeah, I guess my what I'm just wondering from you, as, as someone who's close to these these, you know, on the beat, you know, and in the in the in the college football media, like. How do you feel about the, the the response from the media in general and how this has been covered and how it will be covered going forward? You know, do you feel like there's too much hyperbolic panic like that? Or maybe is there not enough um, attention? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, to me, I've, I've just felt this whole time, like the reason those kind of comments from Kyle Brandt emerge is because the focus on the negative and the way that the negative of this is turned up so high um, 
it's hard. It's easy to come to those kind of conclusions, even though I don't necessarily believe them. Like I told Stuart, I don't think Stuart or anyone else is really rooting against football. That's ridiculous. I think. You know. Yeah, but, I yeah. mean the the thought of, the thought that any of us in in this industry are rooting against the sport when right. it seems you ridiculous. know. Let's be honest. Yeah. Our our job securities rely on college football. If college football wasn't played this season, I would be worried about my job in the future. Sure. And, you know, I'm sure that's the same thing for Stewart. I'm sure that's the same thing for, for a lot of writers. I think, uh, one, it's a, a natural thought to be skeptical in, in this profession. So sometimes that leads to, uh, some of my colleagues and, and honestly me at, at times, uh, you know, being a little bit more on the negative side of things, uh, when, when things happen, but I think we've got to do a good job. And I think a lot of people have, uh, when you, you really dig down to it at explaining what the numbers mean. So not only not freaking out about, okay, there's this number of positives, but Hey, there's this number of positives amongst this many tests. This is the this is the thought on you know how it affects uh, college athletes and and just sort of offer all, up all sides to it. And I think a lot of times that gets lost, especially on Twitter, where things get magnified and that seems to be where you hear the uh, you know you're rooting against college football thing because it it leads to so much polarization and also. I think uh, for me, I've got to realize that Twitter isn't always real life. Yeah, it's as not. As far as the way yep. people react, mm-hmm. positive or negatively. Um, so, yeah, I, I think everything's right uh, as far as what you're saying. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think we just need to be cognizant about explaining things well. And that doesn't really work always on a social media platform where you're limited in your, your time and your space. Uh, it, it's more, more, uh, of a print thing or, a online, you know, blog, uh, website type thing where you can take the time to, to explain the context of something. So I, I think that that's something that, uh, all of us in anything, not just the, as we're talking about this pandemic need to do better at. Sure. And we need to avoid the hype hyperbolic gaslighting of that was the worst day in the history of the big 10 yesterday you know that just it just yeah. doesn't serve anyone i don't think um yeah and you can have the opinion that the big 10 shouldn't be playing football sure I mean, there's Fair. there's valid right you know valid ways to to reach that conclusion but i i think when you say it's the darkest day in the history of a conference that's had so many black marks against it uh in, in recent years um, it, you know, I, I think your message gets lost, uh, quite a bit. And then that's when you open yourself up to the, the charges, like what you mentioned that, you know, the people saying, Oh, you just, you just want college football to fail. Right. Well, one thing that I've been kind of, one thing that I've accepted in a way is that this virus is going to virus. And I think that's true in college football too. So in the end it is what it is. So let's move on. L- look at I know it was Gussie State, you know, not even in the same world, but holy shit, Spencer Rattler, right? I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's, 
that's about the right reaction. I mean, to, to see what he did, yes, it was Missouri State. Yes, they're a, a bad SCS team. Yes, they're a bad FCS defense. But some of the throws that Spencer Rattler made didn't matter what the defense was. The, the accuracy, the arm strength, the ability to throw on the run, the decision-making, the poise, you saw why this kid was the number one uh, football recruit, the number one quarterback recruit in the 2019 class. And you saw why a lot of people have, have, have thought of him as, uh, you know, the next great OU quarterback. Um, now he's got to continue to improve. He's got to continue to do those things. But the, the first sign of him starting was just phenomenal. Uh, heck, the most impressive, Maybe two of the most impressive throws he made were incompletions. A uh, his first incompletion, which was dropped by Charleston Rambo in the end zone, in a right. spot oh, where yeah. Rambo was the only one who could get it. It looked like a, it was a tiny window. He put it right in there. Just I think Rambo might have been surprised that the ball got to him in that spot and, and dropped it. And then uh, Austin Stogner dropped one in the end zone that was right over the middle and just. Uh, just hummed in there. I mean, the, the arm strength on that thing was pretty phenomenal, but it was still very catchable. So, you know, let's not get too overboard about the hype uh, with one game starting, but it certainly looked like Spencer Rattler uh, is what a lot of us thought he was. One thing I noticed is I didn't realize how effortless his delivery was. You know, like that one touchdown – um, yeah, the, the first long the, bomb, the, the long one. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the long one to Marvin Mims. Yeah, yeah. he he made it uh, without even planning. He threw, uh, yep. gosh, what was it, about 50, 50 55, yards in the air? Yeah, fifty in the air. Sure, yeah, yeah, and uh, just did it without looking like he was working at all. So, uh, you know, imagine if he gets time to to sit down back there and plant how far he could grow so yeah i mean it looked a lot like kyler murray uh you know his arm strength was off the charts um i think he's more like baker mayfield in a lot of ways but that certainly was reminiscent of of kyler for sure let me ask you this about the quarterbacks and lincoln so i think here's what excites me as an ou fan and maybe you as someone who isn't you know writing about OU and is probably looking for good things to write about, I would think, would you'd want it to be good. Uh, when you start your career, Heisman, Heisman, first pick, first pick, you know, I think the buzz about playing for you and how that could work for you goes really high. And I just feel like this program is always going to be, as long as Lincoln is here now, in the running for the top, QBs in every class you know QBs are going to want to come to Oklahoma I remember when Patrick Kane was 15 years old and growing up in Buffalo he left he left Buffalo to uh, play a year of uh, bantam hockey in Detroit and everyone was like well why do you do that and it's like well the coach of that team is Kevin Deneen and he's going to live in Kevin Deneen's basement you know, and, and I think this is going to be like a Kevin Deneen situation, right? Like, people are going to be like, I want to go live in that basement. You know what? Do you agree, disagree? Like, isn't that – I don't know. That makes me just really excited. Yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, 
you can argue with that at all. I mean, heck, you look at the 2019 class, uh, the the one that uh, uh, Spencer Rattler uh, signed in, and and not only did they get Spencer Rattler, the number one quarterback in that class, but they got uh, three five star receivers. Yep. Uh, I can't remember if they they were these th- top three receivers that year, or three out of the top four, uh, something like that. But uh, you know, clearly, offensive players, especially receivers and quarterbacks are going to be drawn to this offense and Lincoln Riley. I mean, heck, you look at uh, uh, the the upcoming class uh, where, where they've got uh, Caleb Williams, the five-star quarterback, number one quarterback in that class uh, uh, committed right now, and along with, uh, you know, five-star receiver and Mario Williams. So uh, they're, they're going to have their pick uh, of quarterbacks, and also by extension receivers for as long as Lincoln Riley keeps doing this. And certainly having Spencer Rattler, if he keeps doing what he's doing, doing that, it will even get amplified even more because that's sort of been the one, I don't want to say knock against Lincoln Riley because it's not like he's had a chance unless he uh, refused Jalen Hurts last year, which virtually nobody in college football would have done outside of uh, – Nick Saban, who had him, and, and Dabo Sweeney, who had uh, Trevor Lawrence. Right. Anybody would have taken Jalen Hurts, but that one sort of knock on Lincoln Riley has been, well, he hasn't developed his own guy yet. He's turned guys who transferred from other programs into great quarterbacks. Sure. Well, yeah, but he, he developed Baker Mayfield. I mean, it's clear through uh, the, the year of sitting out uh, and working with, with – uh, or excuse me, he didn't work with, work with Lincoln Riley there, but had at least a spring to work with Lincoln Riley, that Lincoln Riley made a big uh, impact on him. And heck, you saw the growth from him from sophomore to junior to senior year. Yep. Kyler Murray did, did sit out. You see the growth from him from his freshman year at A&M to uh, what he became at OU. Same thing with Jalen Hurts. I mean, Jalen Hurts became such a better quarterback a year ago than he was at Alabama as far as uh, uh, throwing the ball, his decision-making, things like that. So, uh, yeah, Lincoln Riley uh, is not going to hurt for recruiting uh, offensive players uh, anytime soon. Now, with all that said, right, they're not winning national championships because they can't stop anyone, right? And the defense was improved last year. And look, at I think that when I look at these playoff games, and last year's especially, like, look at LSU is just the best team. You know what I mean? So, like, I, you know, yeah. they, they they whooped us, but whatever. Like, they were the best team. They were just better than us. But I don't want to avoid the obvious that the defense has not been good enough. And, again, Gussie State, you know, a nobody team. But it's a shutout. It's the first one in a long time. You know, there were some positives there. What do you see in the defense so far? Is there reason to believe that this defense will be better than it's been the last few years? Yeah, I, I think they're heading in the right direction. I and mean, heck, we saw that last year in Alex Grinch's first year that uh, the the yards per game was down significantly. Their ability to get off the field on third downs, which was atrocious a year before, was much better. They had a decent defense, and a, a decent defense isn't going to be enough to win a playoff game or to uh to win a championship but it was a whole lot better than what they had before what they didn't do last year was turn the ball over very much uh on the defensive side and they've got to force more of those for sure and we saw some good signs of that on saturday we'll see how those continue 
not sure how much you can take away that game uh, defensively. I think the thing that really stands out to me, though, is the improvement recruiting-wise. And they've gotten uh, better even in just this one year in depth in the secondary. I think they're going to be able to rotate more guys in and out, which is going to help them. But the key for them to competing with the LSUs, the Alabamas of the world, uh, the Clemsons, is going to be front seven guys, especially defensive linemen. Uh, And those have been hard to come by in not only for OU, but for the Big 12 period to convince a big-time defensive lineman to come to OU. I mean, heck, the last one really was uh, Gerald McCoy, who was in OU's backyard. And and, uh, they obviously had a great Now, Jordan Phillips became a pretty good player. They've had some other pretty good players. I mean, Neville Gallimore was. But you look at their recruiting on on that front, and it's it's really ticked up. Uh, You look at being able to to get Kevin Gilliam, uh, the the four-star defensive tackle in the 2021 class, who's really highly thought of, I think. And that's not a guy from OU's footprint. It's a guy from from Virginia. To, To get a guy like that who's, you know, the number seven defensive tackle in the country to come to OU, I think says a lot for, for what Alex Grinch is building on that side. Now they've got to continue it. We'll see. They don't have to have a top five defense to win a national championship. Right. They've got to, but they've got to have a top 25 defense to win a national championship. And I, I think that's the direction they're heading. Uh, but they've also, if they're going to do that, they've got to keep up doing what they're doing offensively uh, as well. They could have won the national championship, Bakers, last year. Like, they blew that game against Georgia, and it wasn't just the defense. Like, Baker Mayfield had the ball in his hands two or three times in the f- two overtimes and the last drive in regulation and just didn't do enough to help the defense. And I still think that they were better than Alabama. Like, I just think it was a good matchup for them. Um, so, but whatever, they didn't get it done, but you're right that every time I see those eyes pop up on a tweet from Lincoln, I'm in the back of my mind, I'm like, wow, would it be great if it's like a defensive guy, you know, a five-star defensive <laughs> guy, you know, because it just always seems to be, you know, a wide receiver or a quarterback or, you know, whatever. But yeah, uh, it was better this year. And I'm glad to hear you say that you feel like it's getting better in general. Who's a guy or two we're not talking about on this team that you think can be, a big reason for success if it happens? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, they've got several options at receiver, and we'll see who winds up being winds up. Yep. Uh, one of those big guys. You know, obviously, I think everybody expects Charleston Rambo to be one of their top guys, but I, I think I look at a guy like Theo Weiss, and it's hard to say he's sort of overlooked, being he was one of those five star guys. But I, I think given who's been around him the last couple of years and, and also that he didn't have a ton of production last year, uh, I, I think he's a guy who could take a, a really uh, big step forward this year. But, uh, you know, the other place I look at is, is the secondary. And he had an interception the other day, but uh, I think he doesn't get talked about very much. And that's Delarian Turner Yell. Uh, the, the safety there had a really nice season last year as a sophomore and uh, started this season really well. We'll see where he progresses from here, but I think he's got a chance to be really good. You know, outside of that, I'd probably look toward uh, a couple of those guys that are suspended. 
and it uh, won't be planned for a few weeks. Right, it's October, right? Oh, you hopes will be back. Uh, yeah, in mid October after the the Texas game. You know, Ramondre Stevenson, who finished the year uh, really strongly last year at running back, had the game winning uh, run in the Big Twelve title game. Uh, I, I think he's going to play a significant role when he comes back, and then uh, Ronnie Perkins, who has a chance to be really special at defensive end, and is going to be OU's best pass rusher, especially with Jalen uh, Redmond uh, choosing to opt out. I think he's got a chance to be uh, to make a really big impact once he comes back. What do we know about the suspensions? Do we know like anything? Well, I mean. Uh, they tested positive for marijuana okay. in an NCAA test uh, before the bowl game. So the, the suspension from the, is from the NCAA, and it's uh, half, a regular, or half a season, which is six games. They, they serve the Peach Bowl, so they'll have to miss the first five games. There was some thought that it would be reduced by at least one because the season got reduced. Sure. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. There's still a chance that it could, but Lincoln Riley sort of danced around it and said, well, appeals are still ongoing, things like that. There are no appeals. It's, that's what it is. That, that, that suspension is there. I think they just sort of hope that maybe the NCAA changes the rule or maybe something changes and they can uh, get around that. But uh, as of now, that's where things stand. And uh, my understanding is there's going to be no, um, coming off of that uh, at any point, they're going to have to serve the suspensions. Right. It's too bad because one game would mean they'd be there for Texas. But, uh, and it seems like, you know, if there was anyone more excited, fan base more excited about their quarterback than OU, it was Texas this week, right? So, um, yeah, Ellinger was, was fantastic for sure. Right. And he, he does like put fear in me. At least, you know, like when I I'm like, OK, it's been a while. I felt that way about a Texas player, you know, even though they've beaten us a few times in the last five years or whatever. For some reason, I don't get that concerned about the Texas game in the sense that I just assume that, you know, every once in a while you're going to lose to Texas. I just kind of have priced that in and accepted that, I guess, you know, that the way the rivalry is, if you can get five in a row against them like that's heroic but you're probably not going to get much more than that like every once in a while you're going to lose to texas and you kind of got to price that in and be glad it's early enough in the season that you know you can still win every game in november and the rest of october and it hasn't hurt them the last few times they've lost to them um, yeah i mean heck you just you just look at uh you know a couple of years ago when they lost to them uh Gosh, what was it? Uh, well, it was uh, Baker's 2018 year, right? when they, yeah. they they lose to them. Uh, you know the crazy game where Cameron Dicker kicks the uh, the field goal at the end. At the buzzer, yeah. And then they come back, play them in the Big Twelve Championship game, and get to the the uh, the playoffs. So, yeah. But Sam Ellinger has been fantastic against OU. I mean, yeah, like, he's I'm sitting scary. here yep. uh, lo- looking at the numbers because I wrote them down for for something I wrote the other day. Uh, he's thrown. Uh, for 1,151 yards, five touchdowns, and one interception in four meetings against the Sooners. So he's been uh, fantastic against them, you know, pretty much across the board. There was the the one, I guess, last year uh, wasn't as good uh, during the, the regular season, although he was, still didn't turn the ball over and, and 
kept it up, although his line couldn't do anything for him as OU sacked him nine times. But, uh, yeah, Ellinger's been fantastic. I think Brock Purdy is, is really good also in this league. And OU gets to face them back-to-back here in just a couple of weeks. Well, it's basically a big 12-round robin now with a championship game at the end. Uh, and, you know, OU has obviously owned this conference the last however many years. And, you know, if they want to go back to the playoffs, they're going to have to, you know, do it again. What, what just, what's your outlook? Kind of end the OU talk on this. What's kind of your outlook for the rest of the season, knowing that there's a lot of variables, you know, that we're not going to be able to anticipate or control, um, you know, any day. Yeah, there are a lot of variables. Yeah. But I, I, I think OU is in as good a position as anyone. I mean, heck, if they – if they win out in the Big 12, or even if they drop one regular season game and win the Big 12 uh, conference uh, conference title game, you know they're they're going to the playoff. Yep. Um, so I think a, a lot of other Big 12 teams, probably with the exception of Texas and probably Oklahoma State this year, uh, couldn't necessarily say that. Uh, but I, I think those two teams, uh, especially given last week, although you know after seeing what Iowa State. Iowa State losing, I think you also have to uh, temper that a little bit by remembering that in this year, I think teams are going to change so much week to week that, well, you know, that team that lost to Louisiana might not be the same team that OU faces here in a couple weeks. And OU, heck, I mean, just, uh, you know, say Spencer Rattler gets dinged on a contact trace or have to sit out right that completely changes OU's dynamic in that game so um it's it's difficult to predict because of that but all things being equal if the teams we saw on Saturday last Saturday are the teams we see moving forward I think it's going to be OU Texas and Oklahoma State two of those three are going to play for the Big 12 title game and I I think OU's probably going to be one of those teams it'll just come down to Texas and OSU for who the other team is, but uh, it's certainly going to be an interesting season. I think this is one where the big 12 maybe has a little bit more intrigue than it has in the past, because you've got two of those teams in Texas and OSU uh, that seem like they have the ability to at least challenge the Sooners. Hmm. All right, let's do this backspacer lightning bolt gigaton rank them for me. Oh gosh, that's tough. Um, I actually like Backspacer a, a fair amount, but I would probably put it third. Um, uh, gosh, Lightning Bolt has some some great songs on it, but I'd probably put Gigaton one and Lightning Bolt uh, right behind that. Okay, what what uh? So you're sitting on a pair of tickets waiting for a show uh, to happen here. W- what would be your top three gigaton songs you'd want to hear at that show? Uh, let's see. Top three gigaton songs. Well, what one would be uh, Dance of the Clairvoyance. I really like the, the different uh, sound of that. Very unique. Compared to yep. anything that they've done in the past. It's unique. I think it would be really cool to see that live. I think it's also probably a really difficult song to play live, uh, which is uh, also another one of my favorite songs from uh, 
from one of the recent albums was was getaway which apparently is a, a very tough song difficult. to play yeah. live as well which mm-hmm. they don't play a ton which i absolutely love that song from uh from lightning bolt uh but so uh dance of the clairvoyance was would be one quick escape would be another one i really like the the sound of that one it's Again, got a versus feel to it uh, to me feels like a versus song yeah right? yeah yeah, it does. It's uh, sort of a, a throwback type song for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, really interesting sound. You know, Jeff, Jeff, a man, I think any of the songs that he writes can be sort of uh, funky and, and interesting. Uh, I, you know, I, I love all the stuff that Eddie does and, and obviously that, uh, that Stone does, but, but Jeff gets out there a little bit. Sure. And I really, really like a lot of the, the songs that, that he writes. Um, the third one's tough because there's a lot of them that are, you know, fairly close. I'd probably go with whoever said, but uh, that that would be a difficult one. Whoever said and seven o'clock are probably my two favorites on Gigaton. I really am interested to hear Eddie sing seven o'clock live because it's got yeah. it's very wordy. And I really like his delivery of the vocal track on that song. Uh, so maybe, but whoever said from the, um, from the point where the, he says, uh, home is where the broken heart is to the end is maybe the best two and a half minutes on a Pearl Jam record ever. Like maybe, you know, like it's a really strong, strong track. I think going back to what I asked you originally, I would probably put lightning bolt third backspacer second and this first backspacer is just so short you know it's a real i mean it's not even 45 minutes long i don't think um but i think they're all strong i'm you know i a lot of the reviews are like oh pearl jam's back or something you know but i've liked all (laughs) these albums so i don't know where they went but to me that they were you know i like all three of those albums so but i was just yeah i think the 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 thing that stands out to me about Gigaton is just some of the different sounds that you see. I mean, it's clearly, it's a variety for this sure. Is sort of, this is sort of cliche, but you see some growth in them and you can see where people might not think, especially with backspacer that there was much there because it was sort of familiar in some ways. But, uh, I, I really like the variety of sounds in gigaton i i wouldn't wouldn't certainly wouldn't argue with how you think although i'm sitting here looking at the backspacer track listing and, and thinking about the songs that i like to see live the songs that i you know, like to listen uh you know supersonic is is uh one of those songs i saw it live uh, a few years ago in oklahoma city yeah when they there. were making ref- yeah. reference to the, the uh supersonics <laughs> the supersonic right. uh in in seattle and, and their history with uh tied with Oklahoma city, but, uh, you know, force of nature is a heck of a song. Speed of sound, you know, unthought known, uh, just, just a lot of really good songs. So yeah, it's, it's hard to differentiate there, but I'd probably go, uh, uh, gigaton there. Yeah. I, I think that the seven year gap has created the variety a little bit because I feel like when you listen to it, you're there's sometimes you can't believe two songs are from the same recording, but then you're like, Oh, well maybe this one was from seven years ago, you know? And then this one is from a year ago. You know, I think that that, yeah, that long period probably created some of the variety on it. 
You know, and Dance of the Clairvoyance, the first time I heard it, I just wasn't ready for that. You know, so <laughs> compared to now when I hear it and I think of how I felt the first time, which was, oh, I don't know about that. I'll have to hear that a lot more. You know, Mind Your Manners was the first song off of Lightning Bolt that I heard. And I was like, oh, yeah. wow, okay, that rocks. Let's do that one again right away. You know, where um, yeah. Dance of the Clairvoyance, I just needed more time. But it's really grown on me, you know. Uh, but yeah, whoever said in seven o'clock and Quick Escape are probably my top three. And I really like Renegade. Um, or retrograde. Or retrograde, excuse me, retrograde. And um, what else? I'm not a big fan of River Cross and the Stone song. Um, the buckle song, yeah, yeah. buckle, buckle up, yeah. yeah. If I if I'm, you know, putting a bottom two together, it'd probably be River Cross and Buckle Up. Uh, I do like the Matt Cameron song uh, a lot. That's on there. Uh, never take a long way. Yep, and um, Never Destination is is pretty pretty solid too. Um, it's a really I thought a really strong you know album. I love the art. Uh, the I bought the vinyl just because I, I just thought it looked so great. You know, originally I bought the CD and then I'm like, I want to get the record of this because <laughs> it's just such a a nice a nice piece of uh, artwork, which they're always so good at. You know, I feel like having an artist like oh, yeah. Jeff in the band and kind of taking charge on that. Um, you know, I feel like those are always, it's always great. I feel like the run they're on from Yield, you know, you know, no code is, is weird, but from yield straight through I, th I think every album has been really really beautiful to look at aesthetically but yeah i mean i really like my favorite album when you just talk about the looks of it yeah i'd probably say backspacer because yeah it's real the art is you know, at, really cool art yep yeah and as a writer i love the the typewriter keys sure and, uh all that stuff yeah i really like binaural too like i love the binaural cover and um yeah yeah i like that's when i i you know what backspace is a great call i like this one um that that's an underrated part of pearl jam um i guess just because it's not music related so it's easy to overlook but i really yeah i really like here, the art yeah and i'm sitting here looking at the the two uh posters i have hung up in my living room and i have several more that i need to get framed from other concerts I've been to, but the two uh, Pearl Jam Wrigley Field shows, uh, the, what, the 13 and 2016 uh, ones. And I just, I love the art from them and the artists that they work with, uh, things like that. And um, it, it's a really cool part of the show to be able to get a poster that you want to hang up and that you like looking at and remembering you know some of the moments from from those shows for right. every day as i see those uh wrigley field shows come on i mean heck uh, you know i was able to go to uh, uh the first one in 13 and then night one of 16 and you know first one of uh 2013 you get to see ernie banks come out there after a three after hour rain delay. Delay. Yeah. yeah and uh you know they played till 2 a.m and it was absolutely miserable getting back to our hotel at 2 a.m. after uh, 
the uh, right everything shut the down L probably right uh, yeah. spread out yeah. and and were running much slower than they normally would after a show, but it was so much fun. And then uh, you know to go back there a few years later and experience it uh, the same year that the Cubs wound up winning the World Series. Of course, I'm a massive Cubs fan too, yeah. so Wrigley Field is is my happy place. But uh, just some some great shows and. I was disappointed that I missed missed out on uh, seeing them here in Oklahoma City. Oh right, yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Disappointed I missed out on on going to 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 see them in eighteen. Unfortunately, but uh, they were supposed to be in Oklahoma City in April. Yeah, and, and uh, obviously you, that didn't happen. I know you needed that show too. Uh, I I have the I went to Pearl Jam ten, you know, in Vegas, and uh, I have that yeah. poster. And I have it, you know, I have the Pearl Jam 21 as well. So I like really want a Pearl Jam 31. I hope we can get to the point where that can happen next year. And, um, you know, I know you really need a show. Is there a song when this show, Oklahoma City, if that's your first one after all this, is there a song you really want to be first? Like, is there one you just want? Like, I always think about, you know, I've been sometimes when it's been a while since I've been a show. You know, I've been through a lot like in, you know, the next one, I've had three surgeries since the last one. And I just know when I get when I when I'm there and the lights go off, this is a thing for me for a long time. The lights go off and I'm waiting for them. And it seems like my whole life since the last show just sort of flashes before my eyes in a way. And I appreciate the fact that I'm there you know, so much that like, no matter what happened since the last one for me, for them, for the world, I'm here, I'm there. And, you know, then, then they, they play whatever. And, you know, sometimes like if it's long road, um, and it's been a long time, I really appreciate that and can really get into that. I think Chicago in 18 long road was first. I'm pretty sure. And, I just remember standing, you know, under the stars of Chicago on an absolutely perfect night um, and just really appreciating that. Is there, is there one that you would feel like you really want to be your first song back when it it will happen? You know, eventually they'll play. That, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, you know, there's a couple that come to mind. One long road for yeah. the reasons that you mentioned. And also, I haven't heard that song live. Oh, uh, so really, uh, really would love to hear that, but you know, for me, and I've heard it a fair amount at, at the shows I've been to, but it's always emotional and it's always, uh, special to hear release. Yep. And, you know, I, I think, uh, to start with that would be fantastic. And then the other one is, you know, not necessarily a song that they've opened with, with a ton and it's it's one that you're going to hear at most shows you go to and uh you don't think of a special but i think in this case it, it might be if it was their, say if i was at their first show back uh elderly woman okay to hear that uh sure you know never i've been at a show or return two. yeah i've been line. at a show they open with that for sure i think pittsburgh pittsburgh in 2006 maybe they open with that i've definitely seen it as an opener at least once that's yeah, a good, yeah. And just and, and it gets the crowd into it right away, uh, you know. Even though it's not a rocker, and uh, it, I just think that that would be one that would carry some extra emotion. 
coming back from from all of this and, and being able to see live music again, which I miss so much. Had several concerts scheduled, not only Pearl Jam, but was supposed to go see The Who uh, in, in Dallas, which actually got canceled twice. So, uh, and, and they finally just canceled it completely. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to see them before uh, they stop being around. And then we're supposed to see a, a Black Crows reunion show, right? Uh, also this summer. So, and was really looking forward to that. So, hopefully, we'll be able to see some live music before too long. Because uh, you know, as much as I miss sports and, and being around a stadium, being around a ballpark with uh, a packed uh, stands full of people, I also miss being at a concert, you know, surrounded by people who uh, are enjoying the same music that you are. Absolutely. I uh, had three Pearl Jam shows in the next 14 days when they canceled oh. them. Yep. When, they, 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 when, not... when they canceled them. Yep, I had three on this know, calendar. We were like. What? Yeah, they... overreaction, and then everything got canceled. Yeah, and then two days later, <laughs> yeah. you know, right right here, you know, 10 miles from where I'm sitting, the world sort of changed. Right. I don't know how y'all feel about it. No, know, for sure. Being there, but the, the Jazz Thunder game yep. for me is sort of the uh, touchstone for when this became a big deal. Absolutely. Absolutely was. Because just I think the way it happened, too, with everyone being there, you know, and, you know, it's not like it got canceled at 2 in the afternoon or something, you know. But, right. It yeah. was a big game. Yeah. It was on national television. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, what's going on here? Why why aren't the Jazz out here? And then, you know, we obviously find out what was what was happening. You know, it's funny, too, for the Sabres. They were in Montreal. Uh, they were going to play on Thursday, a Thursday night game in Montreal. And it didn't get played. And then when they returned to play, you know, the Sabres were 25th. They invited 24 teams back. If they had played that game and won, they would have been the 24th team. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they and they had played two less games than Montreal, who was 24th. I mean, obviously, you can't cry that much about being the 25th team. You know, like, come on, you know, be better than 25th. Yeah. Right. But but, yeah. but it's also frustrating when uh, just that one little right. game would have made a difference. And I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you were the same way. I was I was fired up to, to watch watch hockey when it came back and uh you know to not have your favorite team there had to be uh, uh you know a little Def- bit difficult it definitely stunted my enthusiasm a little bit to not have a team um but rooting against toronto was fun and they they made a spectacular <laughs> failure for me to to well to, that's uh, usually what they do right yes all right ryan aber is a good dude and um uh, one of the best on the OU beat, and you can follow him on Twitter, and he is at R-Y-A-B-E-R there. And, of course, you can read his work in the Oklahoman, uh, and that's at oklahoman.com. Anything else you want to promote or plug or anything like that? No, I think uh, those are the main ones. You got it. The Oklahoman.com, follow me on Twitter at R-Y-A-B-E-R. Uh, I wish I could have got just the at Aber or at R Aber, but somebody had unfortunately taken it by the time that I uh, right. signed up. Jerk. Yeah. Uh, what was it, 11 years ago? But that's all right. We'll deal with it. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on as always, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do it before too long and talk some more uh, 
OU football, college football, and Pearl Jam. I want to thank Ryan Aber and Jeff Perlman for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this episode of the Sportscasters and all episodes of the podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters there. Email me. Please do the sportscasters at gmail.com. I am available for all and any interaction. I respond to pretty much everything. Greetings from Allentown, the wonderful one-man wrestling podcast by my friend Peter Winson. Available every Thursday. He never misses a week. He's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. Uh, I know recently he did a November of 89 WWF podcast. I think that's the most recent one. He had a World World Class 83 podcast recently. Uh, It's a new show, a one-hour podcast episodic television show from the history of wrestling all territories you can't beat it adrian dater also at a dater on twitter at col hockey now they just announced i think a vegas hockey now uh, which i'm sure will be a huge hit Uh, check that out if you can adrian will be on soon Uh, before we get into one last thing i wanted to mention that for the next podcast uh, your homework is to watch the console wars documentary It's on CBS All Access, which is a premium service, but they do have a trial, uh, and it is 90 minutes. It's great. So it's worth the time to watch and worth the effort to set up a new free trial. Um, But certainly if you already have CBS All Access, if you're like a big big brother person and you do live feeds, that's the service, you know, that it's available on. Uh, and I obviously, uh, I do recommend it a lot. All right, one last thing today. I wanted to talk a little bit about my grandmother who has been gone for 25 years as of September uh, 23rd. And, you know, the thing about grandmothers and grandparents in general is that they are the absolute best, but they die before us in almost all circumstances and certainly uh that's the way they want it you know we have these unbelievable people in our lives who are like our parents but without the discipline and the uh, they're like mickey mouse parents in a way you know i don't know they're just the best right and i had this amazing grandmother and her name was paula and i told her story in different ways over the years on here for sure uh but given that it's her it's the anniversary of her death 25 years i i feel like it's it's a good time to repeat it uh my grandmother was born in italy in 1929 and she lived there until she was 12 years old my great-grandmother who was born in the united states and then went back to italy as a child was able to leave Italy when it was in the time of Mussolini and World War II because she was a citizen. 
she was not able to bring her children, at least initially. So my grandmother and her sister, who was four, stayed behind with relatives until my grandmother sent word that they could come over. Uh, when that word came, my grandmother, who I said again was 12, uh, took her four-year-old sister by the hand, walked her onto a boat, and held her in her arms until they arrived at Ellis Island and were reunited with their mother. And this was not a Norwegian cruise line ship. And to me, it's one of the bravest things I've ever heard in my life. I think about how I was at 12 years old, a good big brother, I thought. I had a two-year-old brother then, and I had a six-year-old brother then. Uh, but I was not mature enough to take them on a boat without our parents and sail across the Atlantic Ocean. I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't brave enough. I wasn't strong enough. But she was. She did it. She was a beautiful, beautiful Italian woman. I was talking to her cousin recently, her favorite cousin, Linda, who told me that she was really, really picky uh, when it came to men and really difficult to woo, if that's the right word. Uh, so she was always a little surprised that my grandmother fell in love and married my grandfather, uh, even though they were never actually married because he was already married. Uh, not only was my grandfather already married, he already had children, two children he had in the 50s. Uh, then he married my grandmother and had my mother in 1960. Or was it 59? 1959, I'm sorry. October 19th, 1959. Uh, and not too long after that, he gave birth to another child from another mother. That we know of, my grandfather had eight children from three women, and two of the families uh, were growing simultaneously. Uh, at one point, my grandmother had enough, and she moved the family to Italy, or excuse me, Erie, Pennsylvania. And my grandfather followed. He left on my mom's 16th birthday. Uh, not to return until after I was born uh, when he basically came home to die of cancer. Look, at I have a certain view of my grandfather. He was my grandfather. He died when I was six years old. Uh, I have a sort of cartoonish view of his life. Uh, some of his other children have recently come into our life. And I like I like him. You know, like he's a he's a, a good memory for me. But sometimes some of the things that come up about the way he treated my grandmother sort of take a hit. It takes a hit to the memory a little bit. Uh, but more, it sort of illuminates the legend of Paula. This incredibly brave sister. This beautiful woman. Great mother. And loyal wife until the end, despite everything my grandfather put her through. Uh, she took him back when he came back, and she took care of him until he died. And I remember what those days were like, and they were not always easy. And my grandfather died in 1986, and right around 1998 is when I remember 
that as a family, we started noticing the decline in my grandmother. Uh, she got Alzheimer's disease or something like it. We never did the, I guess, the post-mortem, or that's not the right word, the post-death autopsy that needed or the test needed to confirm it. She had dementia of some sort. Doctors assumed it was Alzheimer's. She fought her disease with bravery. Uh, I remember how scary it was for me as a seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid. Uh, I think I've told this story before. One time, my mom and my Aunt Lisa suggested she go to a movie. They suggested she go to see Beaches. She came home. She said the movie was scary and bloody and was mad. They told her to see it. She had accidentally went to see The Hunt for Red October. I remember one night she was babysitting my brother and I, and my dad, my stepdad, had to teach her how to work her car to get home. And I still can't believe we let her drive away that night, uh, but I'm pretty sure that was the last time she ever drove. I remember the Christmas where the snow was so bad uh, that we couldn't get down Walden Avenue to see her. And had to turn around and I remember looking at my mother from the back seat through the crack that is between the seat and the window on the passenger door. And watching the tears run down her eyes uh, as the realization that she wouldn't see her mother on Christmas uh, was sinking in. And of course I remember her funeral. I remember her wake. I remember being the one who had to tell my Uncle Paul that she had passed away. My Uncle Paul was on a business trip. And I remember being home alone. The word had went out that he needed to call home. And my mother left to take care of the arrangements, I think. And I knew that if that phone call came while she was gone, I would be the one who would have to tell him. And I sat nervously at the phone, hoping it wouldn't ring, and then it did. And I remember having to tell him, that grandma had passed away. I also remember arriving to the wake. My great-grandmother was still alive. And I remember us pulling up to the front, stopping, so that grandma could get out, great-grandma could get out, and my mom saying to me to take her in, which of course I did. I didn't realize it would be the saddest moment of my life. As we started walking into the funeral home, my great-grandmother started saying over and over, Oh, my poor Paula. Oh, Paula. And I was trying with all my might to hold her up because she was sobbing and almost falling. And I took her to the front and we kneeled in front of her casket and she cried and cried. And it was just her and I in the room, 15 years old. It was a heavy moment. But I also remember those few days being happy for my grandmother in a way. Uh, her disease was nasty. And she fell and broke her hip towards the very end. And I remember the last couple of times I seen her, she cried the whole time. 
And her death almost felt like a mercy to me. I was sad she was gone, but happy it was over. There's probably some people out there that can relate to that. So I remember happiness in a way those days that it was over for her. And in the years since, sort of the sadness has faded in some ways and the pride has evolved. I got the wonderful honor of being able to name my daughter Paula. Which means so much to me. And to my family. I remember. At the baby shower. You know the guy comes at the end. To thank everyone. And to pack up the presents and all that. And I was at my mom. Or my wife or whoever said. You know you should say something. And I remember just standing up. And thanking everyone. And saying how excited I was. For my family to have Apollo To love again. And I've said before on here, maybe other places, that when I think about my grandmother, I think about her bravery, I think about her strength, I think about how great of a mother she was, how pretty she was, and these are the qualities I hope my daughter, you know, can develop as well. And I have... The lucky privilege, and sometimes it does feel like a burden, uh, of her six grandchildren to be the only one that knew her, really knew her, and had memories of her, the real her. You know, of course, by 1995, both of my brothers were born. Uh, My cousin Paulina was born. Uh, My cousin Scotty was either born the previous April or the next April. And if they were alive, they were too young or what they remember is she was sick. Where I remember going to a work picnic with her. I remember sleeping over her house and watching Monday Night Football when Joe Theismann had his leg broken by... Uh, Lawrence Taylor and she thought it was so disgusting and she wanted it turned off I remember that she loved Oldies 104 and Smokey Robinson and I remember that she loved the Golden Girls and I loved to watch it with her and I remember the color of the noodles that she made me Uh, and I remember not saying anything when she made me noodles and forgot to make the sauce I just ate the noodles I can remember driving with her in her blue car like a Chrysler. You know, I just remember, I can remember being her grandson. And of course, my brothers and my cousins, they never got that. So I appreciate that, but sometimes I feel guilty uh, that they didn't get it. Uh, But here as we stand 25 years now since she's gone, I am just grateful for the impact that she had on my life. I'm grateful that she was a great mother, that she raised great mothers. Uh, I'm grateful that she 
loved me, that she got to know me. I'm thankful that I have a Paula of my own. I'm thankful that my wife was willing to not even consider another name. We didn't even consider one other name. When we found out that we were having a girl, we knew we were having a Paula. And as much as I've missed her the last 25 years, I am so grateful she didn't have to live even one more day uh, with the horrible disease. And although in some ways her life was a tragedy, it was also I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It was also look, she was my grandmother. I loved her. I miss her, but I'm honored to be her grandson. <laughs>